VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, January the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a call in the queue on the air. You know the deal. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So snowing a bit here in the metro region, some rain coming later, lots of blowing snow and delayed school openings out on the west coast. Real cold snap up in Labrador, so a bit of mixed winter weather here in the province. We're looking forward to talking with you, weather or otherwise. Okay. Looks like the Newfoundland Rogues dropped three straight against the visiting London Lightning over the weekend at Mary Brown Center. The caliber of ball is really good. The crowds have been really sparse, so it's probably very much worthwhile to check out a Rogues game. If you're so inclined, and the Newfoundland Growlers hockey team on the road, they were in Cincinnati for three games, picked up their 30th win and swept the Cyclones, picked up all three games and six points there. Uh, pretty good day for the Newhook siblings on Saturday. So Alex playing for Colorado. It was his 22nd birthday. He had actually scored on his 21st birthday as well. So he scores a goal, Colorado wins, and he's the first star. Abby Newhook, of course, playing in the NCAA ranks at Boston College. She scores, they win, and she was the first star. So not a bad afternoon for the new hooks there. And the curling tankards were awarded in the province over the weekend. On the women's side, Team Curtis beat Team Strong. They qualified to represent the province at the Scotties and Kamloops coming up in February, at yeah, sometime next month. And then on the men's side, Team Nathan Young. Boy, they're up and coming team. Team Nathan Young beat Team Greg Smith. They will go on to represent the province at the Briar, London, Ontario, in March. So congratulations to both. This is an interesting one. That's interesting to me anyway. It was today in 1990 that Ray Kurzweil published what's called the Age of Intelligent Machines. People refer to it as a tour de force of the time. So he was going on to talk about technological advances. And it's remarkable just how accurate he was with looking down the road as to what might happen for communications, teaching, transportation, innovation. So he talks about the functionality per unit cost. You know, makes... Uh, predictions associated with translating telephones by 2010, intelligence assistance by the mid-1990s, completely driverless cars well into the first half of the 21st century. And if you click on a link to, uh, about Ray Kurzweil and the age of intelligent machines, he was right on. Here's one of the quotes. Facts alone do not constitute knowledge. For information to become knowledge, it must incorporate the relationships between ideas. And for the knowledge to be useful, the links describing how concepts interact must be easily accessed, updated, and manipulated. The age of intelligent machines. Okay, so Memorial University's Faculty Association are on the picket lines. They are on strike. You have heard the word impasse many times, and that's exactly what they arrived at when the talks broke off. So there's always going to be a lot of emotions and a contentious and fractured relationship when you arrive at a job action, whether it be a strike or a lockout, and that's exactly where they are. Some of the back and forth has been quite heated, predictably so. So the university itself will focus in on the pay issue. And their most recent offer, I was going to say their final offer, but I don't know what other offer might come, a 12% salary increase over four years, 20 additional weeks of supplemental parental leave, a 24% increase in pay for teaching additional courses, and extra pay and signing bonus for those on-term appointments. And then you hear from the Faculty Association, and it's not just based on pay. 
They talk as much about pay as they do collegial governance. Now, the University Faculty Association is represented on various committees throughout, but they want more of a role, more say in academic-related decisions, a spot on the Board of Regents. And I'm not trying to speak for either side because I don't represent either side. But there's a lot of big questions looming out there. So, for instance, I don't think it's surprising, albeit slightly odd, that the student union, representing the students who will be impacted negatively by the strike, they're supporting the faculty association, and so be it. So, now what we're going to have to see today is the instructors who are not represented by MUNFA, but by another union, they're going to be, if they're going to teach the course in person, forced to cross a picket line. Same with the students. A very uncomfortable setup, to say the very least. Then you wonder how long a strike might be extended to where we talk about a semester potentially lost. Now, the university says they're going to do what they can to see that the semester is saved or salvaged, but at some point, if it drags on, we don't know exactly what the benchmark looks like for, for instance, if they're out for four weeks, what does that mean for the ability for someone who's scheduled to graduate upon completion of the fall semester? What does it mean for the potential for refunds? Now, MUN, of course, is going to be saving a lot of money by not paying its professors and instructors and the faculty that they represent who are on strike, whether that be librarians, counselors, cooperative and field education coordinators. But if it comes down to refund, it's also going to be a big snarl. And when that becomes appropriate, it remains to be seen. I don't know. So if you want to take it on, I think it's a big story. Of course, we need a functioning well-governed and administered and, of course, a top-quality list of instructors and tenured professors, and yes, for students to have the best opportunity for an excellent education at Memorial University and its various campuses. But they're on strike today, and I have no idea where it's going to end. But there's also a couple of things that maybe the university itself can't deal with straight up on their own. For instance, a seat at the Board of Regents. Apparently that requires the provincial government to update the Memorial University Act. Now the student, pardon me, the university itself says they agree with it. They've said to the provincial government that they would indeed accept those particular amendments. So maybe some of the things that the Faculty Association wants might not even be readily available strictly upon the authority or auspices of the administration at the school. So if you want to tackle that story today, I think it's a big one. We can do it. One more mention, taken to task by several people when I made this utterance last week. When we talk about the university being poised to address the needs of the population, there's lots of opportunity for thirst for knowledge and curiosity and the want for uh, lifelong learning, totally. But they also have to be well positioned to create the curriculum and the course offerings that deal with the needs that are happening on the ground today in this province. So there's obviously going to be a lot of focus on healthcare and the number of seats in all of the healthcare discipline schools at MUN. And what I said last week was, you know, any monies that the university had considered spending on the creation of a law school, when there's no such thing as a lawyer shortage here in this province, but there's certainly a shortage for the various healthcare disciplines, so any money spent on a law school, which would be as much about university prestige as it would be for need, maybe refocusing that attention add money to doing more in the healthcare world and or innovation tech, wherever we think the opportunities lie and shortages persist in the province. But if you want to talk about that, I'm more than happy to do it today. Also last week, for the first time in a long while, made mention of the fixed link between Labrador and the island, and it got some traction. We had a few calls on it, tons of correspondence for, via email and Twitter and what have you, 
And so this one sticks with transportation-related matters in Labrador as well. Now, this has been on the table for years. There's actually been money in the most recent few budgets about connecting the Trans-Labrador Highway with communities in the north. So now they're going back out and moving ahead with a pre-feasibility study. Okay, so where would the priorities be? I would imagine for the folks in Labrador, if they had to guess, now we welcome your perspective because you're in Labrador, is it more important to move towards connecting the Trans-Labrador Highway to all the communities in the north, or is it more about focusing in on that fixed link? And yes, currently the federal liberal government said that they think it's a good idea. They've adopted it at some of their policy conventions. It's been handed off to the Canada Infrastructure Bank, and we'll remain to see what happens with it. So they've got a consultant hired, and they're going out to do the study. And of course, many of these communities in the north, they're forced to travel by boat or plane. The weather interrupts uh, air service frequently, so they're moving forward with that. But if you want to extend that into the conversation regarding that fixed link, whether you're for, against, or have questions or comments you'd like to pass along, I think that's a good one. Okay, this was promised a while ago, and now it's gone ahead, and they've begun to do uh, orthopedic procedures in different parts of the province that weren't at that time having them done. Orthopedics in particular, nip, nip, hip, <laughs> and knee replacement surgery. So they made their way to the Charles S. Curtis Memorial Hospital uh, earlier this month to do some 11 joint replacements over five days. You know, it's all in an effort to not only treat people where they are versus the requirement to travel for these types of surgeries, and it might not seem like big numbers, but you, you have to eat an elephant one bite at a time. So while we try to deal with the surgical backlogs, this is going to be helpful. Now, the work continues out in Carbonear for some of those procedures to come to that part of the province. So there are 2,000 patients in the province currently waiting for an orthopedic procedure. That's just in the eastern uh, region alone. When you look at the entirety of the province, there's even excess of 3,000 people awaiting these procedures. And we all know what wait times mean. So if you're talking about the need, and you've been told by your surgeon that you need a new hip or a new knee, the longer you wait, the worse your condition becomes. And, of course, mobility is jeopardized. And then your sore knee could all of a sudden lead to a sore hip and vice versa. So... Here's some of the wait times and the benchmarks, because that's what we do, is we talk about wait times in the province and compare them to the national standard or the national benchmark. Wait time for those two procedures is 182 days, about a half a year. In this, in this province, so some patients are waiting upwards of two full years. So trying to deal with that backlog is going to be a big deal. And there's the follow-up for the patients is in place post-surgery checkups or what have you. So it looks like that's a really good idea. So we'll see if they, how quickly they can bring it to the Carbonair Hospital as well. So they think they're going to be able to do some of these procedures, some 300 of them per year with this travel team of orthopedic professionals. All right, I read this story, and it comes from the province of Ontario, but it's happening here, and we've talked about the circumstances here. And this is regarding when you come to an age where your health needs are best addressed in a long-term care facility. This story is about a couple in Ontario, and they've been married for 73 years, and now they're separated. It happens here, too. You know, we're told, and I remember Minister Osborne saying something along these lines, it's no sense legislating that this to happen to keep people united or reunification if they don't have the capacity to take care of it. Now, in the province of Nova Scotia, they have legislated this, so it can be done. You know, when we talk about whether it be more work to understand the aging demographic of the province, 
and home care workers and policies allowing seniors to age in place, age in their own home, or yes, if and when someone needs to be in a long-term care home. And you know, they talk about the priority list for how you get yourself a bed in a long-term care facility. And that's all fine and dandy. One of the quotes that comes from one of the doctors in Ontario doesn't, doesn't give anybody uh, any cold comfort. So right now, hospital-designated crisis patients are at the top of the admission list. Then it goes down through those who are living in the community, and their health has been what they call destabilized. There's certainly lack of resources, but here's one of the quotes is that under the current system, the w- uh, in this case the woman, she doesn't qualify because dying of a broken heart doesn't qualify as a community crisis. Boy, that's a mouthful to say out loud as a healthcare professional. So they need to be safe and live in a dignified setting and to get the care they need. But whatever we have to do and however we have to figure it out, separating couples who have been together for decades just seems callous. And I know there's probably no easy solution at this moment in time. There is a staffing shortage in many long-term care facilities. But add to it just how many people in the province, your mom or dad, nan or pop, who are in a hospital, they need to be in a long-term care home, but because they don't have a space, they remain in a hospital. So it's not just about cost uh, for the families. You know, I know stories where the person who has been in a hospital for so long has just thrown their hands in the air, given up hope. So these things are problems that persist today and will only be more so in the future. So that whole concept of being separated after in this case, 73 years of marriage. And there's stories here in this province, uh, couples married into the 60s of years. But, man, oh, man, that one. And on that front, you know, there's some population forecasts out there that are really quite something. The population of the Northeast Avalon has grown in the past year by some almost 5,000 people. You know, it's been referred to as a good thing, a reason to be optimistic. But, of course, more people requires more addressing of the basic needs, number one being housing. And we all know the story regarding housing and just how expensive rent is, for instance, and the low vacancy rate here in the province, or in this part of the province, pardon me. But in the long term, once again, for the planning required for the future, we have the lowest fertility rates in Canada. There are some of the most bleak forecasts or predictions that see the population of the province dropping by 16% over the next 20 years which is completely unmanageable. And I think when we throw around the word crisis, it can be associated with that as well. So we have a healthcare crisis, but we absolutely do and are facing a population crisis. You know, so through the combination of whether it be more and more attractive options for people to stay here as young families, and or yes, immigration becomes part of this conversation as well. But the population numbers that we are hearing people call good news, and it's not bad news, But there's a lot of different things that have to be tended to for it to be the maximization, is that a word, of good news. So anyway, let's go. Let's take it on. This one here is not the most attractive story or one of the top of mind items. And the story is written about the city of Cornerbrook. And that's regarding the explosion in cost to treat water. So they budget about a million dollars a year for water treatment chemicals alone. There's been an increase that is more than 50% for some, 40% more for most of the chemicals year over year. So the city produced some between 20 and 30 million liters of treated water a day. And of course, making strides to protect the system to do a better job of identifying leaks because it's all part of cost control, operations, and at the end of the day for the end consumer and the property taxpayer. But they also talk about 
And this one has gone by the wayside. It was a big story a few years ago. It was about wastewater treatment. They've been, uh, they've been taking in a sewer upgrade uh, fee for a number of years. They got about $14 million set aside to build a waste treatment facility, which they say will cost between $75 and $90 million. But here's the trick and the rub. It was back in 2012 where municipalities across the country were told that they had to do better to treat their sewage. At this moment in time, in Cornerbrook, the wastewater gets dumped into Humber Arm from 12 sewer outfalls, and so municipalities were told by 2020 you have to have taken care of that. And so many communities in this province and across the country have not. Remember there was a town clerk threatened in Dover, the town of Dover, with incarceration and fines if that community did not keep up and not hit the targets, and so many communities have completely missed these targets. Because we are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars to ensure that communities province-wide can hit the wastewater treatment targets that the federal government has set forward, but it's come and gone. And I don't know if there's any penalties that have been administered to one community or another, but it's the least sexy item. But of course, modern-day Canada, dumping our sewage into waterways is certainly not good, and you want to take it on. We can do it. And speaking of uh, proximity to waterways, and I know this is not a big story for some. It was front page above the fold for the telegram over the weekend, and it's regarding the outer battery lights. We all know the story. It's absolutely ridiculous. But the lights are off for now. And they will remain off until, I don't even know what this means, until they're, they need to be turned back on. Why would they need to be turned back on? Was there ever a need for them to be installed and turned on in the first place? I would ask. But we'll see now if the city, now that there's been some peaceful resolution to this, you know, I know the city would like to see amendments, many amendments to the uh, City of St. John's Act, and they didn't even accept the province's offer of a fast track of amendments to deal with nuisance lighting, but those outer battery lights are off for now. A couple of quick ones before you go. This one was posed by a friend on Facebook who's new to the province and listens to the show apparently, wouldn't I appreciate it. So she talked about the fact that moose are not native to Newfoundland or Labrador or, pardon me, to the island. We all know that. So they were introduced, I believe, 1904. Her question was, okay, so those four moose were introduced. When did we have our first annual moose hunt? That's a good question. I have no idea. So when did the moose hunt become a thing? I guess when there was enough moose to constitute some licenses in different parts of the province to go hunt your moose. Frank, if you're listening this morning, maybe you know. So when did the moose hunt actually take place? And this is going to be a nuisance, but it's coming. So starting on the 1st of April, and we probably need a bit of lead time here, when you make a local call, regardless if it's down the street or out in Central or wherever, you're going to have to dial all 10 digits, which means you're going to have to dial 709-273-5211 to call this program. So it's all, of course, to accommodate moves that were dictated by the Canadian Radio, Television, Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, to accommodate the introduction of 988. That's the three-digit emergency service for mental health crisis and suicide prevention, which is an excellent idea. So here comes the need to dial all 10 digits. Between the 1st of April and the end of May, when you don't dial all, all 10, or omit the 709, you'll get a message saying that, you have to use 709 in front of the number you're dialing. So it might not be a big deal, but just think about it. In my phone, you know, for some, when I have uh, your cell phone number and the need to or want to text you, I've got 709 in there. 
But even like when my mother, mom is in my address book with just her home number, not 709. So go through your address book because we're all going to need time to make those adjustments. But the question first off is when did the moose hunt begin in the province or on the island? We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show. You know the deal. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Terry, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for putting me into the queue. Happy uh, uh, I just want to bring up a little bit about the Sunwing fiasco. We have saw flights to southern uh, destinations uh, like Punta Cana and, and Jamaica and all the other southern uh, areas being cancelled in Moncton and Fredericton and in uh, Halifax. I shouldn't say cancelled, but cut back in the number of flights. Here we are in Newfoundland sitting back, waiting for the axe to come down on us, and nobody is demanding answers. Are they going to fly out of Newfoundland this year? Are they not? I don't think Sunwing knows. You know, there's a lot of complications there, isn't it? Because Sunwing is part of the WestJet group. They've pretty much become a Western Canadian regional airline, so I don't know. And with all the compensation dollars going out the door based on Sunwing over the holidays in particular, leaving folks stranded, uh, left to their own devices in Mexico, I think there's big questions as to whether or not Sunwing is going to endure. Yes, yeah. But at least, you know, you think that the Travel Association will get together unless they're an arm of the uh, airlines themselves and they get together and say, look, we're not going to put ourselves in the situation. Number one, where we won't get commissions like they didn't pay them in Regina and Saskatchewan and so on. Uh, let's not put ourselves into that uh, near occasion. You know, uh, let's let's prevent it. Let's demand answers. But now they're continually selling packages and more so they're selling insurances. There's more money for the airlines to protect in case you'll get you'll get a voucher or what have you. What's the good of a voucher if the airline is bankrupt? Excellent question. Personally, I would not entertain buying a package from Sunwing Travel and or a, a ticket for passage on Sunwing Aircraft because I think the uncertainty is huge. And you mentioned Regina. It looks like there's a class action. Well, they're looking to have a class certified in Saskatchewan against Sunwing. So I think the future is extremely precarious for them. And WestJet probably be happy enough to see them go by the wayside, even though, you know, that that loss of the por- their business portfolio is not good. I mean, it's something had to uh, make an emergency landing in Toronto there after taking off from Toronto a few days ago as well. So that airline is plagued. I wouldn't buy anything yeah. from them at this moment. Yeah. But, I mean, you're, you're protected under your uh, trip interruption, trip cancellation, etc. but a lot of people don't have credit cards. Well, add to it, even if you do have that sort of protection, you know what, for instance, if you've got to travel somewhere for something on a set date, not just a getaway for a bit of fun, but go to a wedding or a business appointment or something in particular, that cancellation insurance can help you financially, but it's not going to get you where you need to go. So that's why I would, no. I think, stay no. away from them. And I'm really surprised the media hasn't been asking them for answers, so particularly Newfoundland media. I know they're not that important in the, nat- in the national setup, you know, but at least, you know, if people are out there, the more noise, you know, they might force be forced to come out with an answer. We know that in Newfoundland, there's no competition like air transit that's in other provinces or what have you. 
So I can see some of the reasons why they hauled out of some of the other provinces, you know. But uh, I, I don't know. And, and commissions have been cut, you know, uh, to areas that were cancelled. I mean, they're hurting the travel uh, agents themselves, and they continually, continually, continually put their hand on the block for their arm to be cut off, you know. When you anyway, say that's all, Paddy. I just wanted to uh, note that uh, uh, if people don't make a noise, we don't even get a little a little answer, you know. You're right. right. So when you say about the lack of media attention, uh, if you had a suggestion to make at our newsroom meeting today, what do you think should be done? What are the questions that you're looking to have answered for long-term viability of the airline, or what exactly do you think are the angles we should pursue? Just curious. Well, uh, you know, the long-term viability, it depends on what you mean by long-term. I mean, this season would be enough for people to be satisfied that, you know, they're not spending their money uselessly and 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 uh, not getting any answers for it. At least settle this season. And then, of course, if they decide on March the 2nd to be bought up by WestJet or what have you, well, fine, you know, they can reorganize, etc. But at least give the travelling public from here, from January until March, the end of March or May, when they usually come, uh, leave the province, at least they'll be at ease for that period of time, you know, I agree. We'll see. Uh, personally, I will see what kind of answers I can get. They've been very tight-lipped uh, for, I guess, obvious reasons. And they're going to fall behind, you know, certain things. For instance, in Western Canada, they're going to ta- talk about, well, we can't say much now because there might be a class certified to challenge us in court. But around here, I don't even know where exactly we can or should turn because Sunwing will just put you off to the WestJet group. WestJet group will put you back to Sunwing. But I'll give it a shot just to see what we can find out. Maybe they, the they easiest place is to go right to the St. John's Airport Authority to see what they know because yes, they would have yes, ongoing that's, that's conversations start, with the carrier. That's the start, but it doesn't seem like Newfoundlanders are willing to even make a noise, you know? Right? Yeah. Well, let's see if we can make some. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. I mean, the whole issue with air travel, of course, it is broken in this country. And there's been, you know, testimonies offered at the uh, commi- standing committee, House of Commons committee, regarding travel. So there was representatives there from the different airlines, not of Via Rail, which has had some problems as well. But, yes, those answers are important. I think I'm going to start with the St. John's Airport Authority because they'd have ongoing conversations for their own basic knowledge of what their carriers are or are not going to do. But in addition to that, we've heard from Transportation Minister Alagbra talking about there might be some tightening of the Airline Passenger Bill of Rights. Good idea, because it's currently fairly flimsy and not working. And again, add to it. The Canadian Transportation Agency is the uh, organization people go to with these types of complaints. So they have a backlog of 30,000 complaints. And here's where it gets even more frustrating, I think, is that they have the ability to find the airlines, not just to help me or you get compensation from an airline for things that were outside of our control. You know, there's going to be some weather and mechanical issues which interrupt travel. It's just nature of the beast. But it's too quick and too easy for the airlines to fall in behind that. The problem becomes the transportation agency has the ability to hold them to account by fining them. But not once since the reintroduction of this airline passenger bill of rights has an airline been fined for these types of matters. Zero. So, of course, the airlines are going to drag their feet. Of course, they're just going to stand back and watch. Of course, they're going to allow the backlog to grow at the Canadian Transportation Agency. And that's not good enough. And in addition to that, on air travel, we've lost a lot of service in this province. Tons. 
And I know people think it's foolish to even talk about, you know, hoping and wishing and wanting to do something about reinstating some routes. A lot of it is about money. I mean, the one I go back to was WestJet's direct flight to Dublin. We lost it to Halifax. Why? Because they made a more attractive offer, as far as I can tell. Seat sales were up year over year, but that wasn't good enough. Okay, and we can tackle that. Now, many of you responded quite quickly with the moose hunt question. And, and I'm glad you did. I didn't have a chance to Google it because I was busy getting ready. And the answer is now, the first moose hunt took place in the fall of 1930. Very cool. Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Jennifer. You're on the air. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you? Great today. Thanks. How are you doing? Good. Um, I just wanted to um, voice my concerns in regards to cell phone use in schools, in junior high and high school. Good one, yeah. Um, I have three children. Now, my oldest is in high school. Um, this has been an issue now for a few years. But the, um, the school, um, like there is no rule of thumb that you are not allowed to bring your cell phone into the school or into the classroom. It has to stay in your backpack. It has to stay in your locker. They are allowed to bring it into the class. They sit in class, and majority of them are on their phones, and I mean including my, my child also. I've reached out to the school. I've reached out to the school board, and they just tell me that there is no rule of thumb. That, and I mean, I disagree with that because I'm constantly getting emails. Um, you know, my child is missing school. Um, my child is failing. But what I've been saying to the, to the teachers is take the cell phone. Take the phone. I'm not there. I'm working. I cannot do it. Um, if they don't hand over the phone, send them home. Send them. Uh, send them. Do do something. You know, give them. You know, you, you are, they're there in the building with you guys. That's your responsibility there. But my opinion is I don't think they should have the cell phones at all. And it's, it's very frustrating because, I mean, I do feel bad for the teachers. They're being paid. They're stood there. And these kids are just on their phones. They're on Facebook. They're on Snapchat. And I, I just don't agree with it at all. And like I said, I did reach out to the school board, and I just got um, – there, there's no – no, they just said that basically they should have their own responsibility. They should be responsible to put their phones away, but half of them don't do that. Of course they don't. You know, no. I, I'm always a, a little bit amazed with, look, people do what they want with their own children, and I understand the concept of, you know, being able to reach them, them having a phone in case they run into trouble or there's an emergency. I get it. But I see some kids who are really, really, really young uh, with a smartphone. Yeah. So be it. Their parents think it's a good idea. Fine by me. In school, here's where I think it gets complicated for some. Some teachers like to incorporate technology with some of their learning plans. And for it, yeah. you either need a laptop or a tablet or, yes, a cell phone. But I also know a teacher who's uh, created this thing, uh, I guess it was a few summers ago when this was all the rage, this conversation. It's basically like a shoe rack. The pockets that you see on the back of some people's closet doors where they put their shoes. Same thing with the cell phones. It's got the student's name on it. Uh, this is for only in their homeroom. They can't do it for every single kid, but they do use it for if you come in to do that teacher science class. 
before you make your way to your desk, you put the phone in that particular slot and you recover it or retrieve it on your way out after the class is over. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's so easy yeah. to waste time with the phone in your hand. You know, and exactly. back, to the, the, and back to the day where we're passing notes around on paper, they're just Snapchatting each other in the classroom. You know what happens. Of course it does. And that's what I also mentioned. I said they should have a basket outside the door, put their name on it or, or in the classroom and just put the phone in the basket. And, I mean, I think it's, it's horrible because the kids nowadays are failing. And I think that the government is allowing them to fail. They should not be allowed to have the phones in there. If they're using them wisely, yes. But if they're not, they should not have them. And if they're caught using them, they should be suspended or sent down to the office. And half of them aren't doing it. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like it's part of the larger picture where the ability for teachers to, quote-unquote, crack the whip or have more control, and same thing for administrators, the power struggle has kind of gone a little bit further. The pendulum has swung in favor of the students. I mean, they have yeah. a lot more clout. There's a lot of things that teachers can't do that they used to have in their arsenal to keep students aligned. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to say or advocate for corporal punishment because I don't think it works. I mean, I went to school uh, with that as being omnipresent, and it doesn't work. It just makes you even more rebellious. It makes you hate your teacher even more. So it doesn't work. But some distinct controls aren't there because we went from things like, oh, don't worry, you don't have to pass in your report on this particular day, just get it into me by the end of the year, which just makes a lot of work for the teacher. The student knows that they don't have a whole lot of accountability coming their way. And so they have, you know, and even just think about how some students even are willing to speak to a teacher and the disrespect yeah. that we see flying around. You exactly. know, I think it all plays a role in the very same uh, conversation. Yeah, times have changed for sure. I mean, yeah. since I was in school, it's a it's big difference. I can see a huge difference now. Yeah, me too. And the outcomes, uh, they're not reflecting better. It's just different. No, no. I it's totally sad it. in a way because the way I look at it is that they're just they're allowing it. And, I mean, how is it going to get five, ten years down the road from here? That's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I don't – look, there should be a district-wide policy. You shouldn't leave it up to one teacher to be the bad guy or the bad woman exactly. who makes, yeah. my, makes me put my cell phone away. It should be just – standard procedure. If the teacher is incorporating technology where the student needs their smartphone, then it's easy enough to walk to the front of the class and get your phone out of the pocket, you know, out of that little pouch that they would, would have created on the back of the uh, classroom door. That's right. Yeah, and then, I mean, you take it one step further. Like, I don't know how old you are, and I'm not going to ask, of course, but when I was a grade school child, and when and if I got in trouble, and I did something that required the school to let my parents know what I did, the response was always exactly the same. If the school called home, I was in trouble. Now if the school calls home, more often than not, the, the parent or the administrator feels like they're in trouble because you, you know, we've encroached yeah. on the parent. How dare you insinuate that my precious one has done anything wrong or was even capable of being uh, disrespectful or misbehaving when, in fact, most of them are and do have instances where they will misbehave or do something. It's, you know, some of it's part of being a kid. But now the parents are, by and large, not receptive to a call home, when in fact, if I came home and mom or dad had received a call about my behavior, they didn't question the, the teacher or the principal. I was in trouble. Yeah. But I don't think that happens very much either. So, they don't. And I'm not oh. saying, you know, here's how you, everyone should parent. There's no handbook. There's no textbook. Every kid is different. But the pendulum has swung, and I'm not so sure for the better. No, me either. What grade are your children in, Jennifer? Well, the one I'm having an issue with is grade 12, but it's been ongoing now for a few years. So why don't, and again, not to be judgmental, why don't you just take the phone away? 
I've tried, but it's hard to take it. Yeah, it's, I know. It's, it's hard to take it. And I've even said it to the teachers, you know, take it. And they, they've asked and, you know, you won't hand it over. So what? what's the child doing? Just playing Candy Crush or something, wasting time, not paying attention? Just, just on the phone, I guess maybe Snapchat or Facebook. And they actually have a policy. They have their, their social media, their internet at school locked down. But there are kids that have data and stuff that can get on it. It would just be a lot easier if there was a school policy that you put your phone in this basket or this slot. You know, and I'm just speaking for every parent. I mean, even the teachers. I mean, my heart goes out to the teachers because, I mean, it got to be frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, you, you say it's hard to take the phone. Look, it is hard. Being the being the parent and parent alone, not buddy, not friend, not mentor, you know, being the one who has to set down the ground rules, I'm not going to insinuate it's easy because it's not. No one wants to have a no. fractured relationship with their child. But at some point... You know, we all either make a decision that we're going to crack down, we're going to take that phone, or you're grounded for the weekend, or you're not going to hockey, or whatever it is. It's tough. But I suppose the yeah. longer we let things go on, the tougher they become. And now all exactly. of a sudden we're up against this. And, you know, now you need the teacher and the administrators. I mean, I had one of my boys, I like to say that my, I have nice young men at home. But when issues like that popped up, I sometimes felt like I just have to bite the bullet and be the bad guy. Well, I'll take my lumps. So you're not going to hockey. You're not going to that sleepover. You're not going out. You're grounded, you know, for whatever reason, misbehaving or bad marks or talking back to me or those types of things. But it's tricky. You're right. You don't want to create a, a situation where you alienate yourself from your children and all of a sudden that becomes a problem. But, you know, when I harken back, my mother and father had no issues <laughs> with uh, laying no. down the law. That was that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I guess it's all part of it. Jennifer, I appreciate the time. I, I, I appreciate these types of conversations, too, because what happens in the province's K-12 system will go a long way to telling the tale for where the province ends up. It just will, yes, and we don't right. focus on it enough. I thank you for this, no. Jennifer. Good luck with it. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, you know, it is tough, man, to say, give me that phone or just take the phone. It was easier when, of course, I was paying the bill. When they're a bit younger. And look, it's up to you. When you think it's appropriate for your, your son or daughter to have a phone, do whatever you like, right? And there's some fairly convenient family plans that you could fall in under. But I tell you, sometimes you see a young person with a phone and you're like, you know, not one, it's amazing that they can wrap their mind around the technology and be so seamless and efficient with the phone. And yes, it becomes tough to say, I'm taking your phone or I'm taking your laptop. And it just brought me down this path here is there is also so many evils that lurk around every digital corner so even just talking like that with young people whether it be a teacher and or as a parent or aunt or uncle nan or pop because you can get yourself in trouble so easily and so quickly you know one innocuous thing leads to all of a sudden you're in a terrible spot what do you want me to do here david okay we're gonna stay on break uh Time schedule here today, but appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Power outage out on the West Coast. We'll hear from Lindy. Chris actually has a response to Jennifer about cell phones. And then one of the notable municipal leaders here in the country, Hurricane Hazel McCallion. She was the mayor of Mississauga for some 36 years. Interestingly, she lost her first political race and then never lost again. I think in some 17 campaign cycles. Amazing. She died. I believe she was like 103 or 104 or something. That just happened. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Lindy, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I just wanted to call on the, on the reporting from the from the West Coast there on the weekend by the uh, TV station. Okay. Uh, we had a, a two-hour power outage over here, all of Cornwall East, uh, Massey Drive, Pasadena, Deer Lake. Not a word. I still don't know what the cause was. We had uh, uh, lights on the parking lot up in Murphy Square blown over. There was no report as to what the uh, wind speeds for Cornerbrook were the weekend. There was a cabin or a house blown over in Lark Arbor. There was nothing whatsoever, nothing. And there still isn't. Well, the most recent outages out there all had some relationship with the maritime link, and I have no earthly idea. And just out of curiosity, let's say that they told you or it was reported that there was a trip regarding some maritime link issues and or a tower being down in the long-range mountains. Does it matter to you why there was an outage, or what's, what would you do with yes, the information if you had it? Yes, it matters because we haven't had an outage here in ages. And this was unusual for, for the uh, power to be off for, uh, for at least two hours. Uh, in such a wide area I'm talking about now. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know what the cause was, but there's been a lot of it, hasn't there? Whether it be the turnbuckles failing that are in the, uh, the dead-end towers and or Labrador Island link and trips associated with it and then the maritime link and trips associated with it, neither of that has been totally figured out. And in fact, when it came down to the three different sections of transmission line hitting the ground, Hydro didn't even know why. And they were quick to say they have no idea exactly what the failure was. Whether it be the turnbuckle itself failed and or it was uh, simply a matter of heavy ice buildup, or they don't know. So the reason that you haven't been told maybe is the same thing that they told us last time. They don't know. They don't know. I don't know, but I can see what I can find out. There's usually, if there's trips, you know. I've been here now. I've, I've been here now for 80, 83 years, and I can't remember the wind being as high here in Cormac over the weekend as it was over the weekend. Well, maybe it's as simple as that. And the wind knocked no it down. no reporting whatsoever as to the wind speed, what was going on, if it was safe to go on the roads, nothing. Not a thing. Strange. And I'm wondering, like I said, is, is, it, is it gone back to it comes out as far as the overpass again or what? Why would that be the case? I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't know. Somebody should ask somebody, I think. Especially when we had got a reporter here on the West Coast who's supposed to be looking in all, into all those things. Yeah, that's why I don't know why that would be the case, because I guess you're talking about NTV, and they have a full-time reporter on the province's West Coast. I don't, It's not for me to speak for Don. He, he, does, he does a good job, and he can do whatever oh, uh, his, bi his bosses tell him. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I, I don't know what that. happened, Lindsay. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's weird. It's weird. Like I said, nothing whatsoever, Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. This happened on Friday. Uh, yeah, Friday. Uh, Dave said someone just called and told him uh, the outage was a, power, a failure in Murphy Square. A failure? Oh, that's where the light blew down. Yeah. Well, that's a, that. That's, well, you imagined that uh, one light blew down in Murphy Square in the parking lot. Had to put the power out in all the corner geese. I don't know. I'm not saying that's the reason. That's what a caller said. Okay. Well, uh, I don't think it was that. Okay. Not not to cover that wide area. So anyway, like I said, I just wanted, wanted to, 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 to get it on the air. I'm glad you called. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Lindy. Good. Take Have care. Bye-bye. But now some of the outages we've seen associated with 
overloads and then the system trips, which is a safeguard like a circuit breaker that's purposefully in place to protect the system. You know, some of the trip outages, they haven't uh, been extensive like two hours without power, so I don't know what the reason was. But if you do or if you're at Newfoundland Power and you can fill us in so we can fill in Lindy, we're happy to do that. Let's go to line number one. Chris, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. Hiya. How's it going? Great, bye. You? Uh, not bad. Well, first of all, I'm going to say I'm the uh, uncle of two of your uh, former hockey buddies. Okay, who are they? Danny Hutchins, Todd Hutchins. Oh, love the boys. Played a long time with uh, Danny. My exactly, brother Michael yeah. played with Todd, yeah. And I think we probably actually met once or twice back in the day. Yeah, no, fair enough. I want to I wanna touch base on that, the cell phone thing with the lady. Uh, I agree with her 100%. That you shouldn't be allowed to have it in the school, um, and you, and when you talk about like how you can't really ostracize your child because you can't, you got to watch what you're doing now. Everything you got to watch your p's and q's. I'm gonna, I'm going to blame that out all on the justices when they changed that system back in the day because I saw it. I went through it with my sister. Like, what do you mean the justice system led to it? No, like, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking like. Back in the day, you could give your kid a lash in the ass and send him to his room, right? But you can't do that now. Well, I suppose it's corporal punishment in the home. I'm sure it still does happen. I've never done it, nor were we ever subjected to it, but I can tell you right now. No, 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 no. no, What I'm saying is I think it's going to change because um, my sister used to talk shit out of me all the time, right? Yeah, watch your language. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, She used to torment me all the time. And I said, get away from me, get away from me. Right? I said, get out, I'll smack you in the mouth. You know, just get away, right? And she said, then she said, go ahead, you can't touch me. The justice system changed the system. You can't, you can, like, you give a little kid a pat in the ass. Like, like you say, you can go ground them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Has corporal punishment ever actually worked? Because, again, we... Mom or dad never laid a hand on us like that. But no, I tell no, you right I, now, I if just hold on a second. So, but he he never touched us, but I guarantee you, even just the thought that he might was enough to put you on straight and narrow. Exactly. And there was exactly. no talking back they to put, him. They put the fear of God in you. That's what he did. Yeah, but never touched us. So I guess, you know, no, it's, no, it's how I, you do I, it. And I was the same way. I was the same way. I was never touched or hit or anything like that. But I mean, what it was, they put the fear of God in us back in the day that, no, you won't do anything wrong. You won't do anything. You won't do this. You'll respect your parents. And then when they change the law, yeah. just, no, you can't do that now anymore because it's, you know. I think the summary question, though, is did it even make a difference realistically? Like, I went to school with Christian brothers, and we got hit, and yeah, we bro. got the strap. Did it make me uh, make, have a second uh, decision about whether or not I was going to you know, pip off, or I was going to misbehave, or I was going to fire another spitball? Probably not, because we all, you know, unfortunately, I misbehaved probably too much for my own good, but it didn't stop us from doing anything, so I don't think that's the answer. But you're right. The fear associated with being in trouble doesn't seem to have much of an impact on many young people these days. Now, it probably does for some, but not for all, that's for sure. No, I think for a majority of them, it's like, I don't care, do, yeah, do whatever you do. Well, spend it, and you, it, or you ground them, put them in the room with their TV and their video games and all that. That's, that's not grounded, you know? Yeah, I do know. It's, it's, it's a, 
it's a tough topic, but I mean, where, where, where do you go with it? And it doesn't, the same approach might not work for Johnny that it does Jane. And even if, you know, people that have more than one child in the home, what strategy works with one might not work with the other. So oh, exactly. there's not really a catch-all here where it's the fear or it's the uh, guidance or it's the understanding or it's the help or it's being cross or mean or loud or quiet or, you know, the same thing doesn't work for all children. My boys are different enough that things like keeping them aligned, it was a different approach with one than it was for the but other. You, but you, but you, they're probably respecting you, Patty. I'm pretty sure they do. Right. So I mean, that's, that's so they don't they don't cross that line. You know, like or you know, across that line, that can be. Yeah, and there was even very little raising of voices in the house too. So I'm not sure what works for everybody, but you know, if you ask teachers, and for for instance, the I wouldn't want to be a teacher there. I guarantee you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I couldn't. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of stories about some pretty serious uh, instances of disrespect. Now I saw lots of it when I was a kid too. But is it worse today? maybe it sure kind of sounds like it my boys are in their 20s so i don't really know what's happening with some of the age uh, that you'd be in grade seven but it sure feels a little different you think yeah it does <laughs> i mean we, we did it we went through I'm, like to say patty i'm not much older than you but we went through the school we knew what, what it was like and you got home your old man said something or your mother said something you listened it was kind of the end of the road Pretty yeah much. Before I run out of time and get to the news, uh, I know that Danny was not only a great Celtic, but he went down to play university hockey, had a good career, uh, playing yeah. varsity. Uh, so he's still somewhere in Atlanta, Canada. He's not here. Where is he? He's in, he's in Sydney, Nova Scotia. He's in Sydney, Nova Scotia. How about Todd? Todd is still here in town. Oh, he is. Okay. Yeah, Todd the boys are good fellas. The, uh, post, uh, Todd's worked with the post office, huh? Oh, good. Excellent. Great guys. Great guys. Yeah, uh, Danny was some skater. That much I can tell you. Yeah. He could fly. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. Appreciate the time. All right, no sweat, Patty. Just wanted to lay that out there. I don't know if it makes any sense. Or well, your opinion makes enough sense for me. I'm glad you called. All right. Have a great day, Patty. You too, man. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, Hutch. All right, St. Pat's boys. All right, uh, quick ch a quick check on the Twitter feed before we get to the news. And this might be uh, certainly the tweet of the day. It's from uh, the handles called Grandmother. <laughs> it says, can't stop thinking about what will happen to the Kiwanis Music Festival in two weeks if Monfa is still on strike. I won't be crossing the picket line to play bare necessities on the piano. <laughs> Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line two. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning. Patty, how are you? Not too bad this morning for a Monday. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. Uh, Patty, uh, as you said in your introduction, we had a death in Ontario yesterday with the former mayor, Hurricane Hazel. And, you know, I saw something which was really a miracle on television yesterday. I saw Prime Minister Crudeau and uh, Premier Ford on TV both agreeing that this is one of the great ladies uh, in our time. She was uh, 101 uh, when she died, and I think next week she would have been 102. Yeah, so we're talking about Hurricane Hazel, Hazel McCallum. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, uh, she always got a big vote, and I think uh, from, and you know, you, you know my view on politics. I don't have a whole lot of respect for politicians. She was one person who really brought uh, brought uh, respect to the political system. 
she always got a big vote, and she said she got she lost her first uh, her first go round, but that was it. And she had such utmost respect uh, from the Trudeaus and the uh, Fords and other. And I think she's real. She's to be really respected for being a person of politics. And I, I wish we had a lot more like her. She was the mayor of Mississauga for 12 different terms that which ran into her 94th year. I mean, it's a truly amazing story. She was the mayor of that town, that city, from 78 to 2014. Amazing stuff. Yeah. I wonder, too, Patty, uh, you know, uh, she, was a, a, she wasn't a provincial politician or a federal politician. Uh, she represented her city. And I wonder the, the fact that, you know, a mayor or something like that, do we attract different types of politicians to the civic arena than we do to the uh, uh, to the federal or the provincial scene? Yes, absolutely. You know, to run provincially or federally, it very much is party politics rules today. Now, a municipal politician might have political leanings one way or the other, but it's a vastly different set of circumstances. So, yes, uh, we attract different people to the different levels of government, most of it based on partisanship versus you know, wanting to serve your community or serve your province or serve your country? Well, again, uh, I, I keep her in my prayers. Uh, it's something else to be that age and uh, to be able to uh, run a... And, of course, Mississauga grew under her and uh, became a major city. So there's a lot to be to be proud for her family and her friends they, they, they produce a, a great politician that won't soon be forgotten by Ontario. And I'd like for you uh, to thank you for letting me come on today and saying that. Anytime, Brian. I appreciate the call. Okay. Good morning. Good morning to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, there was a quote in the news story right over the weekend where uh, one person who had challenged her on more than one occasion said, it's like challenging somebody's favorite grandmother. But she was a force to be reckoned with, no doubt about it. Imagine serving as a municipal leader uh, into your 90s. There's a lady here, I can't remember the name of the community, but she's been sitting on municipal council for decades and decades as well. I can't remember her name. I'll try to remember it and get it out through this morning. So the, Brian's question is an interesting one. You know, do we attract different types of people with different types of backgrounds municipally versus provincially and federally? And I was very quick to say yes, but I do think that's true. You know, candidates who are willing to put themselves forward in the party system are a different, I was going to say different beast, you know what I mean. They are guided by different things because provincially, federally, whether we like it or not, and I don't like it very much, is it straight up tribalism, straight up partisanship for the vast majority of members of the House of Assembly or the House of Commons. Now around the municipal council tables, you might indeed get that feel or flair that folks have very similar political leanings. And that's human nature. That's hard to avoid in full. But it does attract a different type of person, I would suggest. Now, there will be folks who begin their political career as municipal councillors, deputy mayors and mayors, and move on to different levels of government. But the original thought as to why they wanted to run for elected office, if municipality, municipal politics was their first choice, Probably did come with a different reason or rationale. Anyway, let's keep going. Let's go to line number three. Carol, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? Oh, I'm doing okay. Um, 
I sent you a message, and you told me that you couldn't get it open. Yeah, this it says on the bottom, uh, the, uh, attachment unavailable. Okay. What it's about is yesterday evening, you know, with all the scams and stuff going on. Anyway, this one was from Amazon. It's a computer speaking to you, not a person. Yep. Then they go through and tell you, you know, what's the problem with your Amazon account. You know, there's been a total of 600 and something dollars added up onto it. Yeah. And, you know, to, to speak to somebody about this, please push one. Now, of course, I didn't push one. I hung up. But for 45 minutes, every five minutes, they phoned here at the landline, which is harassment as far as I'm concerned, right? But... If people wanted to know, they're using local phone numbers now. They're a 10-digit number. They always start off with a 709, which is for Newfoundland. And the 437 is for Torbay. And the two other numbers that go with that is either 1145 or 4687. When you call back those numbers after you hang up, all the phone that does is ring and ring and ring, Right. So I just wanted to put it out there to let people know that it's it's unbelievable to how something can be said and not get the point across to a lot of people. But there's also ways, which I found out a few minutes ago, that I can get these two numbers uh, blocked from my landline. But, I mean, I know there's all kinds of scams and stuff out there, but for people who do not understand that even it is a landline coming in, there's no long-distance ring to it, people are going to pick this up and probably go ahead and push that particular one button. Well, I mean, one of the things that the advancements that the scammers have made is what they call spoofing. They're, you know, no longer is it a, a completely unrecognizable string of numbers and who knows where the call is being placed from, but now they've fa- figured out how to make it look like a local call, which kind yeah. of takes us, you know, make, causes many people to let their guard down. Well, it's a local call, so it's not a scam, but in fact, they've just figured out a way for your call display to simply make it look like a local number, so like yeah. everything else in this world. If yeah. you think there's a problem with your credit card or your Amazon account or anything, you get that type of call, simply hang up and check your credit card balance. See if there's any actual activity on your credit card before you just get frightened into yeah. pressing one or offering any information and or your your credit card info or stuff. So all of these things, 99% of those calls are absolutely scams. So yeah. if it's about your computer, check your computer. If it's about, about your bank, <laughs> Hang up and call your bank. If it's about your credit card, hang yeah. up and check your credit card. So well, that's I what I would suggest. Amazon, right? <laughs> what? I don't have anything to do with Amazon, so that's a joke back on them, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> there's a lot of people out there. I mean, and now they're even having the calls come through, even on people's cell phones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, it's uh, it's never on, you know, there's no let up on it whatsoever, you know. Yeah, my landline is what bothers me. My cell phone, I get the straight, that one that was going around, that text message from CRA, that, which was a scam, I got that one. But the yeah. landline, like yeah. I've mentioned to people in the past, when that rings, it's either a pollster or a scammer. And yeah. very seldom is it anything else. But I had to laugh, like, every five minutes, this particular number, or these particular two numbers, every five minutes. Well, I went in and I took the phone off the hook. <laughs> Why not spare yourself? That's right. <laughs> You know, so, 
I mean, like for a lot of people, like that's the only phone that they have is their landline. And if they have to take it off the hook, and God forbid if something ever happens, they can't get in contact with people or people can't get in contact with them. Yeah, I guess the rule of thumb should simply be uh, if it seems like it's a problem, it probably is. So, you know, and if it seems just like the old adage goes, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So, you know, just caution should rule the day here because we see the stories about how many people report the fact that they've been scammed and they lost some of their hard-earned money. But you know full well, only a very small percentage of people actually report that it's happened to them. So it happens far too frequently. We're talking about millions of dollars that Canadians have been separated from because of a scammer. So just don't trust vast, almost anything that comes in, especially on your landline. Yeah, no people, you know I mean, don't get hauled into it. And uh, if anybody's telling you to push a button, uh, just hang up. <laughs> 100%, Carol, I think you're right. And I appreciate your time. Thanks for letting people know. Thank you, Patty. You have a good day. And thank you to your co-host there or your producer this morning for giving me the information that I was looking for. Happy to do it. And I'll say pass along the thank you to David. That's David Williams, the producer. Thanks, Carol. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take, take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. But when we come back, you know, pick it up on something that I was talking about off the top. And this is about... You know, we've seen all the additional costs the municipalities have had to absorb, whether it be with simply energy costs and or a variety of things, whether it be pay raises for employees, but certain, certain things kind of get lost in the shuffle. You know, no one gives a whole lot of thought to wastewater treatment and or the increased cost of chemicals to treat your water supply. But uh, Cornerbrook Mayor Jim Parsons was in the news talking about those two items. We'll pick up on that and whatever anything else his worship would like to discuss after this break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to his worship, the mayor of the city of Cornerbrook. That's Jim Parsons. Mayor Parsons, you're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Couldn't be better. How about you? Yeah, excellent. You get a bit of weather out here, but other than that. Yeah, so I hear. Do you happen to know what caused the power outage that people are complaining about this morning, Mayor Parsons? Oh, I don't know much about the power outage. I know we did get a lot of snow overnight. Uh, the uh, came overnight too, so during the commute, uh, the schools around this area are closed here in Deer Lake as well, and uh, so there's a lot of snow came down in a very short amount of time. So I would say that has a lot to do with it. Now, take us back to the most recent budget. Remind me what was the implication of property taxes or fees for the residents of Cornerbrook? Well, we had uh, like many areas in the in the province, uh, our property assessments uh, have gone up slightly. So we had about a five percent increase in the assessments, which of course all without any changes means that uh, we do get a little more tax revenue without having to adjust the mill rate. So that's what we did. We did do some minor changes to uh, some of the business categories. In our system, we have only two types of property tax, uh, residential and commercial, but we also have business uh, tax. So it's a little different than, say, in town. Um, so in our case, we had to adjust a little bit. Some of our professional designations, their property values went down. Uh, we did adjust a little bit up for the banks as well. Their, uh, their property values were, 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 not, uh, uh, were not increasing. Uh, but for residents, uh, it was any increases had to do with the, uh, the the change in the value of their own property. And we do have we did have the last couple of years a pretty robust uh, real estate uh, boom here. 
Fair enough. And I mean, we've been told many municipalities were able to control fees and or taxes. Some had no choice but to raise them. You know, the operating costs and input costs have escalated, I'll use that word, over the years. You know, if you live in a community where you are, whether it be uh, on boil water advisories for ever and a day, and for some communities for years, but if you live in a community like Corner Brook or here in the city of St. John's, Water we take for granted. We turn on the tap, it's clean and fresh and clear, and you don't really give much thought to it. But explain the circumstance about the increased cost to treat your water, and then we'll get into wastewater in a minute. Yeah, the, uh, so we have a, we have an excellent water treatment plant here. Uh, uh, came online, I think it was in 2015. Uh, it's, uh, it's state-of-the-art. We have, I, I would argue, some of the best water in Canada. Uh, we're very lucky. Of course, our water infrastructure is a bit of a dog's breakfast. Some of it dates back to, you know, uh, uh, to the 40s or 30s, and some of it goes uh, is, is built yesterday. Uh, so uh, it's uh, maintaining that infrastructure is very difficult, and water itself is uh, is getting more expensive. So you know, we have to treat water. We have to do things like it's not just chlorine, of course. It's things like uh, coagulants. So when water comes in from uh, from the ponds, and uh, it it has to be uh, treated to get the uh, all the you know particles out of it, and that's coagulant. Uh, then as well, we have to correct for uh, pH and all these things, and we have to chlorinate it. And so uh, water, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I think in your preamble before the break, uh, we're seeing increased costs from energy. Uh, so our electrical bills, uh, our oil bills, things like that. And that takes its uh, toll on our water treatment. But the chemicals, uh, things like uh, zinc orthophosphate or coagulants or soda ash, things like that, they're gone up about 40% this year um, and it, when we retendered in September. So uh, some of that, I'm hoping, is due to COVID and supply issues, but I don't see it changing a whole lot in the future. Yeah, because as we're all painfully familiar with, when the cost of things go up very quickly, it takes forever, if ever, for them to come back down. So that's one thing. And let's move off to something that, you know, for a couple of years, it was a big conversation, and that was federal regulations for upgrades to water, wastewater treatment facilities. Because as is pointed out in the news story, Wastewater from your community goes into Humber Arm at 12 different sewer outfalls. Collecting money to build a new facility, which you say will cost between 75 and $90 million, I believe, of which have some $14 million on hand. Yeah. What has happened? Because there was communities that were being spoken to in quite harsh terms by the federal government. Threats of fines and, you know, they were, they were talking about putting the uh, town clerk in Dover in jail and all these types of things. Yeah. What's the relationship with the federal government here? Because the deadline to have all of these things in place has come and gone. Now, I think that the uh, uh, I think that might have been a bit of a short-sighted approach. Obviously, we can't do uh, these projects without help from our provincial and federal partners, um, and I think that everyone's realized that. So while there was some uh, pretty sharp rhetoric there for a while, I think everyone's realized instead we need to focus on a, a more medium-term solution. Now, the city, uh, of course, as you mentioned, there are significant costs to building these uh, treatment facilities, and uh, we are, you know, we've instituted a sewer levy, and we've had that in place for quite a while. Uh, so we're ready to go. We have, uh, we probably have, uh, you know, about half the amount of money already saved up in a reserve. Uh, and we are really well managed financially. So we do have a fairly low uh, uh, you know, debt servicing ratio and that kind of thing. So we can borrow money quite effectively. Uh, so we're ready to go. We need help from our, our provincial and federal counterparts. Um, we have been uh, trying to do that through programs like the uh, uh, 
um, investing in Canada infrastructure plan, which, as I understand, is going to wrap up uh, March 31st this year instead of 2025. Uh, so we're, uh, you know, we're still pushing that. And uh, we, we definitely need help to get it done. But we're ready to do it. Here in the city of St. John's, we're able to uh, strike partnerships with other municipalities, Mount Pearl and Paradise in particular, but you don't really have that luxury necessarily. Maybe Massey Drive, but that would be about the extent of it. What does cost-sharing look like between your city, the province, and the feds? Or what's been proposed? Yeah, well, we have um, uh, we do pres- supply water right now to Massey Drive and Mount Moriah. Uh, and uh, we do take the sewer, of course, from Massey Drive does come in through our system. So uh, obviously any system that we build would also have to accommodate that. Um, now, I think, uh, you know, the, the population of Massey Drive would be, oh, I don't know, less than uh, less than 10 percent of our population for sure. Um, so we're, uh, you know, we would still have the bulk of that cost. But typically a deal like this would be done 30, 30, like 30, 30 or 33, 33, 33 kind of thing, a third, third, third. And um and we, you know, we'd be quite happy. I'll take that deal tomorrow uh, if we can get that. Uh, but uh, it's it is very confused. It's very confusing. The ICIP program itself has been um, uh, been a bit difficult uh, from a municipality's point of view. Uh, it's not something we can count on. So uh, when we do our proposals and put in our uh, our want list, uh, we can't count on it. It's really you know something that the province administers, and we don't know what we're going to get from one year to the next. So uh, if we have to get specific projects done, a lot of the, that gets done through our multi-year capital works program. But uh, ICIP is reserved for these, uh, you know, want to have rather than must haves, unless it's something big like wastewater treatment. There's no other program where we could fund $90 million through. Uh, you may have mentioned it and I may have missed it. What's the timeline for having this new uh, wastewater treatment facility up and running? Oh well, the it would take uh, it would take a number of years if we started right away. Yeah. Hope, I would love to I'd love to get the call tomorrow saying uh, we're getting uh, we're getting that because we have put in applications for it. Uh, but uh, I would imagine it would be uh, it would be you know, three to five year process in total. Here in the city, of course, we have limited uh, uh, limited land available here on the waterfront. Um, but we and the outfalls all come out. They have to be tied in, of course. Mm-hmm. We're Fairly lucky that two of the biggest ones, I think there's somewhere between 75 to 80 percent of our waste goes uh, on two outfalls on either side of the mill here. Uh, so it's fairly easy to tie in a large portion of that. But, uh, there's, you know, a site for the development has to be uh, done first. So we're probably looking at some infill along the bay. Uh, and uh, there has been work done toward that in a staged approach. Uh, but we do need to uh, we do need to get that money committed, uh, and we just don't have ninety million bucks in my back pocket right now. No, and you know, province wide, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars if every municipality hit their federal benchmarks, and it's just it's highly unlikely that that can happen. A couple of generic ones for you, Mayor Parsons. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's been. Lots of talk, whether it be stemming from the Green Report, about economic diversification and divesting a government interest in a variety of things, possibly the NLC or Bull Arm, and including Marble Mountain. You yeah. know, a lot of people in different parts of the province, they really bemoan the fact that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of a million-dollar subsidy that flows to Marble. They just had their first quasi-successful summer of operations. But if that money goes by the wayside and or it no longer becomes a viable operational ski hill, what does that really mean from your perspective to the local economy? To me, the people I speak with, the business owners in the area, not just in Cornerbrook, but in Steadybrook and Pasadena and otherwise, they see it as a much bigger linchpin than other people in other parts of the province. Your perspective. 
Yeah, well, I, uh, first of all, the uh, a million bucks, uh, I sort of laugh every time I hear it because we spend about a million and a half bucks uh, subsidizing our civic center here at the city. Sure, yeah. So from a from a provincial standpoint, that's it's not a big uh, it's not a big subsidy by any stretch, and like you said, to a lot of businesses uh, and to our, our tourism sector generally here in the area, it's super important. Um, and I think that the, the the future is even brighter. I mean, we've we've had some challenges there, but I think the key, uh, like many things, and you talk about divesting. Um, for example, I sit on the uh, Port uh, Corporation here in Cornerbrook. So, of course, many years ago, Transport Canada divested ports. They, the way they did it is they had non, you know, uh, not-for-profit set up. They uh, gave them a mandate. They gave them a connection to the community. And then uh, they guaranteed uh, so many years of subsidy um, toward that purpose. Now here in the city, that port corporation is, again, generating revenue it's very stable. It's meant uh, it brought a container service back to Cornerbrook, uh, and uh, which made our mill uh, a viable operation here. Uh, the same thing needs to be done at, uh, at uh, Marble Mountain, in my uh, in my opinion. I was very happy to see that we got representation back on the board. The Steadybrook and the Cornerbrook didn't have a representative on that board for a number of years. Uh, it, it, finally, the province sort of you know got rid of a. Uh, I guess a uh, its its own appointed board and allowed some more representation. I think that if they put a uh, uh, and they have put in people who are uh, experts in uh, various aspects of running a resort like this, uh, and let them give them enough rope to uh, to do what needs to be done and give them some guaranteed investment. You know, just say here, look, we're gonna we're gonna subsidize this operation for uh, so much money over a ten year period, and that's it. And by the end of that, you're on your own. You're, you got to figure it out, or you got to privatize some, or you got to do whatever. Let them do it. There are people who are invested in the community here who are, have expertise, and again, things like the port are proof that it can be done. So uh, that's that's what I would suggest. Uh, governments have a difficult time running a ski hill. That's why it's an arm's length operation. Uh, let uh, give them some more. Uh, give them some more rope. I think it's. Uh, I think they can do it. Uh, we, like you said, positive. Positive vibes coming from the Hill these days. They're definitely trying their hardest. They need to count on some financial support and investment. So, yeah, that's the key. Yeah, I mean, we had the marketing manager. I think his name is Dustin. I can't remember now. Yeah. He came on to talk about all the things they got up their sleeve, and they badly needed good season. The last couple, whether it be snow, technical, mechanical problems, it's been awful for them. So, fingers crossed for a good season this go-around. Uh, last one for you, Mayor Parcel. I'll let you go. Yeah. So, I know we're just in the early days. Well, in fact, in the early hours of a strike at Memorial University, which, of course, will have some impact out in Grenfell. To what extent, I don't know. Does it going to give you any yeah. cause for concern? Listen, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's not good for anyone, um, clearly. Uh, the, we've had a couple of years of, uh, you know, no in-classroom uh, in experience for our students. So they're caught in between in this. Um, it's, a, it, it's very important. Grenfell is very important to our community. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge economic generator, but it's also a big cultural uh, engine for us. brings a lot of newcomers to our city. Uh, it also, uh, you know, it also means uh, we are a very it makes our city more urbane and progressive in a lot of ways. So, uh, look, I want this to be over as quickly as possible, and I urge uh, urge everyone to get together and uh, and consider again what uh, consider what it's doing to uh, not only the students now but the future of Memorial uh, generally. So, uh, I'm hoping that this will be a very short-lived thing, and everyone will. 
uh, be able to figure it out uh, because it's 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 no good for the institution as a whole. So uh, let's uh, you know uh, hope hope it'll end soon. Agreed. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, sir. Now listen, I really appreciate your time. It's uh, it's really good to be have a to have you guys covering stuff and uh, getting the word out. You're always welcome. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All the best. That's Cornerbrook Mayor Jim Parsons. Uh, good stuff there. Let's go ahead and take a break. But before we get there, we talked about uh, uh, Hurricane Hazel McCallion and her years of service municipally, and that would be in the city of Mississauga. One such name, or a couple that have been thrown to me, are Trapassi Mayor Rita Pennell and her decades of service. Mayor Agnes Pike from the town of West St. Modeste. She's been uh, involved in municipal politics for 42 years. And if you have others you want to give a shout-out to, let me know. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the Mun faculty strike that happened began this morning. The power outage on the West Coast, maybe a bit of Beta North. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Marie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? Well, I'm, I'm a lot better now than we have been for a while. Um, starting off with that man this morning, he said he lost his power for two hours. Mm-hmm. Well, how about 92 hours in 10 days or 12 days? 92 Where? hours with no power. Where's this? Galance, between Cornerbrook and Stephenville. Uh-huh. Uh, the freezing rainstorm, we lost it for 50 hours. The next two or three days later, we had snow. We lost it for 16 more. The next time we had was gone, was due to the wind, was another 26 hours, which adds up to 92 hours. And that, I don't think that's very acceptable, and especially this is a community of all senior citizens. The majority of us are seniors. And I called Nathan Power and complained a few times, and they can't control the weather. I said, sir, I'm well aware of that, but I think there must be a better system to to look after our power, and it doesn't have to go off every blink, you know? Yeah, fair enough. So, boy, I, I was unaware of the fact that the outages were that extensive. That's Oh, my dreadful. dear, terrible. We nearly froze to death there. We got neighbors next door to us. In fact, he's our mayor. God love him. Him and his wife took us in. Every time the power went off, took us in. They had a generator in our stove and fed us and kept us there and kept us warm. And I had more neighbors down the street that came up and brought us soup and thermos bottles of hot water and stuff. I don't know what we would have done. I have a hot air furnace, and when the power goes, well, after 50 hours, the house got a little bit cold, you know? Yeah, I don't imagine it did. Yes, and then like 16 hours again, and two or three days later, and then again, we had the windstorm the other night, another 26 hours. Man, and a lot. of trees between here and Spruce Brook. Spruce Brook is a cabin area. We're not a cabin area, but they consider us as a cabin area. I mean, I come to live in this place in 1950. And this was a settlement way back then, so it's a while. And uh, they're considering it as a cabin area, so this is how long we had to wait to get our power back. 92 hours altogether. Man, I don't know. Me neither. So does this change the way you think about power outages and how you're going to prepare for power outages in the future, Marie? Because it might become more and more common, or at least that's what we're told the possibility might be. That's what they're saying. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm almost 81 years old. And I, I got a hot air furnace, and I just had all that replaced last fall or last summer. I think I told you about that the other time when I called. Okay. It cost me a lot of money. and uh, But my son is in Halifax, the only child I have. 
And uh, he said when he comes home, he's going to try to get something set up for me that at least I can have a cup of hot tea or something, you know, and give some kind of a little heater or something to put here. But a uh, man, when that man said two hours, I said, how about 92? So I had to call in because everybody here is frustrated. We've contacted the members. We've contacted everybody we know to contact. And I'm on the council here as well. And I'm not a complainer, but I think for three times in, in, in 12 days, and all these long hours gone, I think it's enough time to complain, you know. Absolutely, 92 hours. I mean, I'd be at the end of my rope, I can tell you that. I was at the end of my rope. I nearly froze to death. I'm surprised we haven't got sick or something, you know. But between here and, and Spruce Brook, there's trees everywhere. And when the, pla- the wind blows a bit or a bit of, of uh, snow, the, the trees are down on the lines. So I said to the guy, why don't you guys come out in the summertime and clear it away so that it won't come on the lines. You know? Don't wait till all this happens. This last two or three years, we've had trouble after trouble with our power, but nothing like we just had now. Well, I mean, I've actually got a very similar complaint. There's trees that are really tangled up with the wires behind yeah. my house, and that's my worry, is that that's just going to cause an outage one time or another here, and I can't get anyone to deal with it. And I'm not allowed to do it myself, apparently. No, no. So... Boys and boys. So I don't know what we're supposed to do, my dear. I don't know where we're supposed to turn. You don't mind, I mean, if the power goes off for two or three hours and, and then or three or four hours, something like that, but like 50 hours for the first time, 16 the next time, and 26 the next time. Yeah, not good enough. It's not good enough, no. I think they should have a better system than that or check the linkages or whatever in the, in the, in the good weather. So this, you know, this won't be happening all the time. But anyway. Well, I'm glad you called on it today. Uh, yeah. I was unaware of the fact that Glance was uh, impacted like that, because that's oh, yes, truly definitely. amazing. Definitely, my dear. Everybody here can't get over it, you know, the way the power has been and what's going on here. And it seems like we're almost the last ones to get the power back. Almost always. I don't know if we don't count or what, but <laughs> make me say stuff. I shouldn't say it, probably. Well, I mean, so be it. It's... Uh, it's an issue, and I'm glad you told us about it this morning, Marie. Yes, well, I, I was thinking about doing it for the last two or three days, and I said, this, I got power now, thank God. But I said, I'm getting on and talking to Patty this morning and letting know what we've been going through here for the last couple of weeks. I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, my dear, very much. Thank Have a good day. You too, Marie. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, 92 hours in a span of just over a week, is that what she said? So that's pretty remarkable stuff. We're not going to take the call just yet because I'm going to shortchange it before we get to the break in an effort to try to hit break times. But, you know, how people are prepared, I think there's probably been a big uptick in the number of people buying generators. But it comes with a pretty big price tag to try to incorporate that into your wiring in your own home so that you can keep the fridge and the deep freeze and you know, a few different spots of the home with power. And, you know, the careful placement of the generator so you don't jeopardize your own well-being. So I think there's been a lot of that happening. But, you know, it seems that there's been a fair number of trips. I know they're trying to settle and solve the issues plaguing the Labrador Island link and the GE software there. And there were some trips associated with the Maritime link. And then, you know, you factor in the story where the three separate sections of transmission line have been downed. They're pointing to the potential that it's the turnbuckle that's holding down the guide wire. About every 20 towers, they call it a dead-end tower, and they do more to secure the line. So something is giving, and it's giving away, and it's causing these outages. Add to it. 
not because I say so, but Liberty Consulting, in their continuous reporting to the PUB, have been speaking about power reliability and what it might look like if there is an outage, say, for instance, in the death of winter in the Long Range Mountains and or the Labrador Island Link, and what it means for, of course, the remote nature of it, access to, and then timelines with a, a restoring power. They've talked about scenarios where we could be looking at 30, 45 days of blackouts and rolling brownouts. So this reliability issue, now, to be fair, Newfoundland Power, when you talk about utilities across the country, has a pretty good track record in reliability. You know, of course, we're all painfully familiar with the Darkenel business and all that contributed to it. But the the grid itself, going forward, there's a lot of unknowns associated with it. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking Beta Nord. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member elected in and serving the folks of Harbor, Maine. That's Helen Conway Ottenheimer. Good morning, Helen. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Patty, I'm calling in this morning because I've been uh, hearing from a number of the tradespeople in uh, the district of Harbour, Maine, specifically uh, the workers in the oil and gas industry. And as well, I've heard from uh, union representatives of, of these um, uh, workers, like the boilermakers, pipe fitters, carpenters, iron workers. We have so many, and perhaps, perhaps the highest concentration of these uh, workers in the Harbor Main District. So I'm calling this morning to uh, just relay some of the concerns that uh, these workers have with respect to what they're hearing, uh, that uh, very little of the work from this project will be constructed here. And this is obviously very, very concerning to uh, to the people in not only the district of Harbor Main, but to the, perhaps the many thousands of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who uh, are counting on the success um, of this um, of the Beta Nord project and the negotiations that apparently are ongoing. Uh, of course, people are. You know, the issue, and I think admitted by one of your colleagues, is that it's certainly in government's best interest to secure as many jobs as possible here in the construction phase. It's important to the people of the province and the tradespeople and keep momentum going. What's your thought about what's going on behind the scenes and how the negotiations are going? So, do you um, know any more than I do, for instance? Uh, you referenced, uh, you know, uh, one of my colleagues, and that would be Lloyd Parrott, and, and uh, you and he were discussing this important issue last week. And, um, you know, as he stated, and he has uh, been involved um, in, in the lead, really, of the, the PC party in terms of advocating uh, with our party to try to support, um, you know, this, these negotiations and the success of these negotiations. From what we're hearing, um, you know, that... Um, I would probably can say I, don't, I haven't heard much more than you. Let's say this. I'm not privy, nor are we privy, to any of the specific negotiations that are going on at the table. But uh, as was pointed out when you and uh, he had this conversation last week, in terms of the, the you know, leverage points and the pressure points, you know, really the, the maximum pre um, leverage that we have, of course, is at the negotiations table is, you know, how much does Equinor want or need this deal to happen? And that goes to the one billion, over one billion barrels of oil. So, you know, as, as far as the specific negotiations are going, we don't know. I hear that the minister, Minister Parsons, um, is uh, very much uh, working hard for this resolution, and you know I'm hopeful that 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 is the case 
But I think we need to see not only the minister, we need to see the leadership of the Liberal government uh, and the weight of that government being brought to bear to influence, if at all possible, these negotiations because of the impact that this is going to have if uh, we're not going to see this work being done here in the province. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, it's easy enough to say we have to do as much as we can possibly do here. We know that there's some restrictions for capacity here. For instance, some of the whole work has to be done internationally. Okay, topsides work. We've done it. We understand. We have the people who know how to do it. We have the laydown yards and the resources to do it. You know, again, it gets really quite complicated. And in the world of negotiations and the give and take, it's hard to know where this one lands. Because, you know, you start with what our equity would stake would be and then the benefits agreement all the way from jobs to research and development. Then you factor in all the unknowns associated with that Article 82, the UN law, the sea, and who's going to be on the hook for those hundreds of millions of dollars of royalties. So this one is probably as complicated, if not more so, than any deal we've tried to strike in the oil business. And, and you know, that's true. Um, I know that from what my understanding is, it goes back to the 2018 agreement. Um, you know, what I've heard from, uh, for example, you know, Trades NL, that um, you know, there were some concerns with that agreement in terms of there was no mention of topside modules. Now, we know, as you correctly point out, that uh, you know, the hull can't be built in Newfoundland, but what about the rest of, of um, you know, the construction? And I think that goes back to government's responsibility uh, to ensure, for example, you know, community benefits agreements. I mean, we in the, in the PC party have long stood for and supported and advocated for community benefits agreements. And what are those? That means and ensures that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are going to be the ones that benefit. And, and that goes back, Patty, to, you know, really the, the simple fact that this is our resource. I mean, we have to re- realize the full potential of our resource. And that goes back to the Atlantic Accord. You know, the government has an opportunity, they have a responsibility to ensure that that principle of prime, us Newfoundlanders and Labradorians being the primary beneficiaries, as set out in that Atlantic Accord, is honored and respected. And so there's a lot I understand is no easy task. And sure, I'm, I'm not at the negotiations table, negotiating table, but I do believe that there needs to be hard, tough bargaining going on here by uh, the parties. And we need to, you know, in terms of protecting the interests of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, because if not, this is not going to be a, a good day for our people if we don't see the benefits of, um, of this project. Yeah, of course. You know, and we simply, or sometimes we just maybe refer to the number of jobs, period. But, of course, those number of jobs are also the numbers of families. There are also numbers of businesses in surrounding area that will be fueled by these jobs. And then it's the tax base. So there's a lot to these conversations in addition to just how many jobs are created here and for what length of time. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes, but there's a lot yet here to be fully understood. I don't know what the timeline is. Equinor says full steam ahead. Their business model is based on $35 a barrel break even. But some of the complexities, I think, are very much unlike some of the other projects, uh, production fields that have been brought to bear. So we'll see where it goes. And I don't even know what the uh, timeline is for business sanction. But And both all sides are really quite quiet. I can't get comment from either or, and I'm not surprised with that. But fingers crossed we maximize our opportunities on all fronts. 
jobs, and- royalties, whatever equity stake looks like. You know, we have to do the very best we can because who knows how many more projects will ever be brought to even the application process. Who knows? And exactly, and, and we don't have, we're not privy to those discussions, and, you know, it would be good because I know that from whom I'm hearing for, from in, in the district and in terms of the workers, they're, they're apprehensive, you know, about what the outcome is, is going to be, and because they haven't, you know, really been updated on what's happening, so if, if it was possible to even just give some idea of how things are going, it would be great. But I just want to put just a human uh, aspect on this, if I may, in my final comment, uh, Patty, you know, one of the um, uh, electricians that I met with just last week had said to me, you know, these are types of jobs, what they really mean, yes, you, you, like you just said, it, you know, in terms of the work and everything, but what does it really mean? And he said it means young people can buy houses, they can start families, they can put their kids through co- college, you know, they don't have to look at leaving our province. And he said, we need these jobs to stay right here in our province, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and we can't settle for less. Have this project built here and uh, have it built by Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. I don't think that's asking for a lot. I know, you know, negotiations are complex, but really it's, um, you know, it's basically, you know, not much to ask for. This is our, ultimately our resource. Let's see some of the benefits from it. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Helen. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Pretty important stuff. All right, let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi there. Good morning. Um, I'm a first-time caller. I've never called into your show, but I listen to it quite often. Welcome. Um, um, I wanted to talk about the memorial strike. Um, My concern is it feels like government has dropped a ball again that they knew that the um, staff wanted to get on the Board of Regents um, for a period of time now, and that seems to be one of their stumbling blocks, according to the news reports this morning. And my other concern is, um, what about the families that are being supported because their children are attending school? Sorry, what does that mean? Like like uh, single families that their kids are going to Memorial University and they're receiving support, like through support enforcement from their uh, husband's spouses, partners. Oh, whatever. I see. What's going to happen there? That's a very good question. I have no earthly idea, to be honest with you. I would imagine there's got to be some timeline of lenience as opposed to at 8 o'clock this morning when they took to the picket line, those supports uh, ended right there and then. I don't imagine that's the case, but I hadn't even thought about that. No, I don't think government has either, right? You know, that's that's a very good question. Um, I've called my MHA's office, but um, I've left a message there. Uh, no, and uh, just just to inquire about it, right? You know, what's what's going to happen there if this strike continues? That yeah. is a very yeah. good question. So would that all be controlled under Minister Abbott's portfolio, I suppose, those types of supports? I think so. I'm going to have to look because off the top of my head, having not considered this already, I'm going to have to have a look around, but I will do exactly that at some point this afternoon because there's going to be a lot of people impacted by the, by that scenario. Yes, yeah, I thought so. And uh, that was my first thought this morning. Uh-oh, what's going to happen now, right? You know. 
Okay, that's my question for today. Uh, just for my own, I guess, my own selfish convenience, do you know exactly what that those programs might be called? Uh, the program? Yeah, for those types of supports. Is uh, Support enforcement... Um, I don't know. Okay, I'll figure it out. That's no big deal. I just thought I'd ask. But I, thanks for bringing that to my attention. It's another piece of the pie or piece of the uh, puzzle piece that we have to consider, and I appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Yeah, there's lots of different implications. That's why these things, you know, it might feel like it's just the faculty association against the administration, the student union against the administration. But there's lots of different issues here, whether it be how lengthy it might be constituting and interrupting your potential to graduate after completing the fall semester, whether it be running up against the possibility for the semester not to be salvaged and the need for refunds. There's a lot to this. And then add to it, I think, uh, while we're going to hear some stories very shortly, about lecturers that are not represented by MUNFA and students who may indeed be crossing picket lines today which is always uncomfortable. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the 11 o'clock news. Corey, appreciate your patience there. He wants to talk about the uh, strike impact as well. And then lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Corey, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Patty, we're hearing a lot... Uh, about the strike this week. Now, last week and last month and last year it was all about the nurses, but we're not hearing nothing about the nurses that are going to be impacted by this strike, which is major. You for mean those who are sitting day, in the nursing school? Yeah, for every day right now, for every day that these uh, that the that are on strike is a day that sixty plus nurses from Mon can't graduate. Yeah, I suppose that is the potential that we're not really sure of, but you're absolutely right. Every discipline is being potentially compromised by this strike regarding when they can convoke or not. So you're right. This will have an impact on that nursing school graduating uh, year as well, no doubt. Yeah, they got 12 weeks now in, so doing their independent, not, or three weeks are done. And as of last night, 12 o'clock, they're not allowed to continue with no more independence. So they're pretty much shut down. Yeah, this impacts a lot of field work, a lot of coursework, and I don't know how long it drags on before we do see the semester potentially lost, but you're right. When you have certain disciplines, now look, everyone who's graduating from any, every program, they think it's important to them, and it is. So whether it be engineers or in the tech sector, computer sciences or otherwise, but when we talk about the complications for healthcare workers, and we know full well the headlines that are grabbed by healthcare worker shortages and what that means for emergency rooms, diversions, and clinics, and paramedics, and nurses, and all the rest of it. It's a big complication to throw into the mess. You're right. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. No. I just wanted to pass it up there. I just didn't know if anyone really understood the impacts of, of the nurses that were trying to get into these hospitals that, you know, they will be delayed. And do that. <laughs> Yeah. That's, all, that's all I had to say. Well, I'm glad you called on it because, you know, you're right. Everyone who was potentially graduating after completing the fall semester and or if it's lost, it will complicate it down the road. It will have the ripple effect. And so the nursing school is not is not uh, protected from this, no, no doubt about it. I hadn't really factored in every single discipline, but you're right. If I'm graduating from Mons Med School, well, which is kind of different because they do the residency work, which might not be implicated necessarily, uh, mm -hmm. but maybe it will be, I don't know. But those are some of the questions I guess we're going to have to figure out. 
Yeah, I don't think it impacted the center, just just among the nursing school and the ones that are doing the fast track. So that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, fair ball. I'm glad you brought it up, Corey. All right, all right thanks. Bud. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, sure. You know, the, and that's why it becomes much bigger conversation. Look, the two organizations that are, you know, negotiating a hopeful, quick conclusion to this between the faculty association and the administration, that's one thing. But it's every single student and what that means to shagging them up is also part of the consideration, which makes the conversation absolutely massive. Uh, let's keep going and go to line number five. Vera, you're on the air. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling about the dialysis in Samantha. Okay. I've been the one that's been trying to get a flowers called. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, we've been trying to get a bus to transport to ta uh, the patients to Samantha is still people having to go on their own or whatever because mm -hmm. we have such a, a rugged road for winter time and and thing and it's hard on the patients too. Um, so if they didn't have the responsibility of driving or whatever themselves. And I've been trying to get through to Krista Howell now for uh I've made eight calls since the new year come in. And there been no return on my calls. So, um I don't know if she's got in hibernation or, or what, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that it's good enough that she's not informing us. I mean, even if she let us know that it's going through the works for the bus or whatever, I know that we've been working at this over, uh, well, well be a year now in March since we had a meeting with Krista and, I know that it's gone through to the government for funding for the boss, but uh, like Krista's not answering none of our calls, and she is their MHA, so like I can't see what the problem is. I mean, anybody make eight calls and you not return them, there's something wrong somewhere. Yeah, of course, because she is the Liberal member for Simpara Blance Meadows, so she is your member, of course she is. Of course, it would only be something she could advocate on your behalf. And so who, just tell me more about this bus. So you're asking the community or the provincial government to provide a bus, or what it's exactly is the play? The government. Okay. We're asking the government for funding to get a bus to, there is 10 patients in our area that is doing dialysis in St. Anthony right now. Um, and um, we're trying to get transportation back and forth because it it's just a brutal road to have to travel, and it don't look like that anything is going to come in Flowers Cove in, in the near future or, or if we're ever going to get it. But uh, we're still working on it, but we're trying to get a bus for transportation for to uh transport the patients back and forth to St. Anthony for their dialysis. And Krista's just not coming across with anything for us. She's not giving us, given, like she's not even so much as returning my call. And uh, I didn't know where else to turn, so I said that I would uh, phone Hope in line this morning to see when I wake her up. 
Well, like every circumstance, regardless of the politician, whether or not they're on the government side or the opposition side, when folks are asking for updates, and you might not get the answer you want, but an answer that says we're still working on it is better than silence, isn't it? And so I know they're probably inundated with calls on a variety of different uh, uh, issues and areas from different citizens. But, look, you got to get back to people as quick as you can because the frustration just boils over to the point where, you know, all of a sudden you're mad at them. And so all of a sudden, like if this had happened two weeks ago and uh, Minister Howell or someone from her office said, Vera, we understand your concern. We're working on it. Update you as soon as we can is way better than no answer, period. Well, this is the this is why I'm so frustrated. Like right now, I mean, I came up there to Alberta to be with my daughter for the winter because I was home alone. Uh, that my husband had passed away, so she didn't want to be me being traveling that road. So I decided to come up with her for a couple months over the winter months. And uh, but I mean, if we had this bus in force, and I didn't have to be get myself back and forth to St. Anthony uh, on my home, that, uh, I mean, uh, that I would be home in my home home. But instead, that I just decided to come up because I didn't know what kind of weather and I'm not in condition of shoveling and, and traveling our roads alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not in the best of health or whatever. So, like, you know, I'm just trying to get things in perspective to get my own, for my own self and other patients as well. I don't know if I'll get a response any quicker than you, but uh, between myself and David, David, let's just see if there's an update coming for the folks up in Flowers Cove regarding busing for dialysis services in St. Anthony. Thank you, Vera. If I can get an answer, I'll be happy to talk about it on the show. Okay, then perfect. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, just a couple of more municipal employee or service uh, shout-outs. This one, apparently the town clerk in the town of Branch has been the town clerk in that community since the early 70s, about 50 years of municipal service. Gussie Power. Anyway, Gussie, let's take a break. Talk away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Sandra, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Thank you. How about you? Uh, I'm kind of upset, but that's okay. I'll, it's my first time calling, so I just got a story sure, to go tell ahead. you. Uh, my brother-in-law, in October, he started throwing up and bad stomach and bad back. We took him multiple times to emergency. They put the light down. He lost 75 pounds in three months. In, one, in, in the emergency in Gander, they put the light down and told him he had stomach cancer. Eating, oh, I'm getting a, I'm getting a bummer. It, they put the light down and told him he had uh, infection in the stomach. They gave him pills, and he couldn't take it. He, it was throwing up and throwing up. We took him again to emergency. They wouldn't admit him. So we took it upon ourselves to go to St. John's and see his family doctor. Now picture this. We're in a car. He's got a salt beef bucket throwing up. We went to St. John's. He saw his family doctor, and the family doctor told him, go to emerge and don't leave until they admit you. We were up there 12 hours. They finally admitted them because we were so upset. We said, we're not leaving until he gets admitted. 12 hours later, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. 
Now, Patty, this is unacceptable. So, you know, it's it's hard to understand how they miss something like a cancer diagnosis. Exactly. Now, I was very upset because this could have been detected in Gander. As soon as the doctor looked at him, his family doctor, he said, something wrong, and somebody missed something. And now he's diagnosed with stomach cancer. I'm very upset, I tell you. Well, it's upsetting enough to get that type of diagnosis, let alone know that it was delayed for X amount of time and so much sickness was between the first visit to the hospital and then the eventual appropriate diagnosis. So, yeah, I mean, these types of stories, regardless if there was uh, an accurate diagnosis on day number one, it's always difficult. Difficult for the individual and for their family and their friends. So how long was it between uh, he was first seen when he became, you know, showing these symptoms before he was first seen and when he eventually got the appropriate diagnosis? Well, th- uh, well, okay, he was first seen in October, and he just got the uh, appropriate diagnosis in St. John's on, on Friday. So a good long stretch. Well, I mean, we stayed in, in, in we, we drove from here to St. John's, and I mean, they're on, they, they don't get any much money. But we drove him in there anyway, the family, took it upon themselves to drive him in. And I mean, it was off. Patty, you should have seen him. Yes, unfortunately, and I'm really sorry to hear this, and I can hear the sadness in your voice, but so many people listening, and me myself, we've seen what cancer has done to our loved ones, and sometimes very quickly and sometimes stretched out over months and months if not years where you watch them deteriorate and see how sick they become so i'm really sorry your family's going through this now that stomach cancer has been diagnosed what's next uh well uh, they told him it was stomach cancer but they they won't be able to run any more tests till this week because that was the weekend right okay and i mean i feel sorry for the nurses they're running their butts off and and i mean they haven't got enough staff but he was in there. He, they didn't even have any beds. They had to keep him down in the emergency until the next day. Right. But I'm glad we stood our ground. You know, when it comes to your loved ones, you've got to fight. You do. And, you know, I guess that's always going to be the case. It's, but the problem with that is not everybody's got the fight in them. Not everybody's got someone who can take up the charge and be their advocate or be their champion. So, you know, you're 100% right with the whole squeaky wheel getting the grease. But not everyone's got the fight in them, do they? No, they don't. Yeah. And I feel sorry. Sometimes I see people in there, no one fighting for them. And I know that the nurses probably get upset, but we said we're not taking no I mean, the nurses can't do anything. But all the doctor had to do was look at them. I mean, you could look at them and see there was something wrong. Sure. 75 pounds in, in three months? Come on, Patty. Well, it, it's severe, obviously. Yeah. So uh, when they get the, like, when they get the, like he said, the, the specialist said you have stomach cancer. But when they get the, the biopsy back, they'll find out more. And he, they're going to surgery. And then he's going to be a long road because then he has to have radiation and... Uh, and chemo. Well, hopefully, whatever is required here, now that he's been diagnosed with stomach cancer, hopefully the next course of action and the treatment required goes well. 
And so say hello to him for me, and I'm glad you called him. I hope you're doing okay, too, because I know you're quite sad here this morning. Oh, yes, but I'll, I'll be fine, but I'm glad he's in there. And like he said, he said, Patty, he said, I don't care what the diagnosis is. I just want to know. You know? Yep, I do. I understand. So, okay, Patty, you have a good day. I wish you well. Thank you for calling, Thank Sandra. You. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. You know, we hear stories, and I've got one of my own. It's not about me, but about a family member where, you know, when something could have been identified and caught to the point where the treatment was possible and recovery was maybe or likely or possible, when it's missed, and I know we're talking about human beings, and it's, uh, you know, as much as we talk about advents and innovation and technology and all the improvements in healthcare, whether it be on the diagnostic side or pharmaceutical treatments, and all these things we know that has extended our lives, our lifespans, we're still talking about human beings. And there will be mistakes made. And that's not offering an excuse for anybody who makes a mistake on that front, but it's what's happening. You know, the hope is that the mistakes become fewer and fewer, and consequently folks who, as opposed to being so sick for so long before someone properly diagnoses their ailment or their illness, we can only hope that we... Make less of those mistakes as time goes by based on whatever, be technology, training, and whatever else is included in that road. Let's go to line number two. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Training and whatever else. Ah. Line number two, caller. Caller, you're on the air. Caller uh, Dave's going to speak to him uh, through the telephone receiver just to remind them to turn down their radio so we don't uh, both get shagged up because, as you know, we have a time delay. Uh, I don't even know how long it is. What is it, seven seconds maybe? Between what you say in my ear versus when it, it goes out over the airwaves. And, of course, that's all brought to bear with the need to sometimes bleep stuff out. Uh, but anyway, I think we're going to shape here now. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, good oh, morning. Good morning. Before we start talking, turn down your radio, please. Yeah, I have my radio off, actually. Okay, great. Okay, all right. Uh, good morning. No, I'm uh, calling to thank a couple that uh, my daughter is in a, was uh, going to get her coffee at Tim's uh, one day last week, and she got stuck on the in the snow there, and uh, a couple came and uh, helped her out, and the lady took her gloves off and gave them to her. And I wanted to thank them very much. I don't know who they are, but they know who they are. And thanks from the bottom of my heart. Thanks again. I had a couple of beeps going on in my ears for whatever reason there. So I hate to do this to you. But yeah. can you repeat exactly what the Good Samaritan did? I kind of missed Certainly. something. There was some interruption in my headset. Oh, oh okay. Then oh, my daughter was going in her, her in a motorized wheelchair to get her coffee at Timmy's. Okay. And she got stuck on the sidewalk. And the couple was were walking and they uh, they came and helped her out and the lady took her gloves off and gave them to her. She had no gloves. She didn't take her gloves with her. Oh so I just wanted to thank them. I don't know like I don't know who they are, but they know who they are and I thank them from the bottom of my heart. Thanks again. Have yeah. And so how old is your daughter if you don't mind me asking? My daughter is uh, yeah, no, no, she's forty five and uh, no, she loves going to Timmy's in her chair, but uh, 
she made a poor decision that day. I wasn't home, of course, and she decided to go. But anyways, everything turned out good. How does she manage to navigate the uh, city streets now? Because we know when a bit of snow comes, yeah. if the road was 18 uh, feet wide at one point, yeah. then it's far yeah. less now when, you know, we talk about pedestrians. But I see some motorized wheelchairs around, yeah. and I just wonder how nervous they get or how scared they get or how they navigate. Yeah. No, she kind of handles it pretty well. Like I make sure that the dry, that the, the the walkways are are done, the sidewalks are done, which it was. But I guess she went into somewheres that it wasn't done properly. But anyway, they they helped her out, and the lady gave her her gloves she had on. Well, that's the good news. There's good people out there. We lose I sight know, of it. Oh, honey, I know we don't hear it often enough. You're okay. 100% Thanks right. Again. Thanks Have for a this. Great day. You too. Bye. Bye bye. Yeah, you know, every now and then we hear one of the Good Samaritan stories, and you're more than welcome to share one here on the show. Got a couple of emails with Good Samaritan related uh, contents last week when we had our first real bit of snow in and around town uh, about, you know, whether it be helping and shoveling out an elderly neighbor or pushing out someone who got stuck. And, you know, people saying that, you know, could you mention this? We'd like to give some thanks to X, Y, and Z. And we try to sneak them on when we can because, you know, we get a little bit uh, overcome or overwhelmed by stories that are not quite as pleasant and don't have that good Samaritan flair or feel. But the more we share them, you know, just like everything else in this world, the more you hear those types of stories, the more likely you are to see more and more of them uh, come to pass. Whether it be just plants the seed in your mind of, you know, the old pass it along or, you know, a good deed done unto you. Maybe you'll do one unto someone else. So, you know, some of those stories really do help us along as well. Okay, so, of course, there's a lot of emails regarding the uh, strike uh, taking place at Memorial University and some of the the uh, intricate workings that need to be considered. But, of course, as I try to remember and uh, remind people uh, just about every day, it doesn't matter if I brought it up or another caller has brought it up. If it's something important to you, something you'd like to bring to the airwaves and to our listeners, please do exactly that right after this news break. Today's a good day to get on. Uh, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, and I'm going to have to get used to this day, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go back to line number one. Good morning, Mark Wilson. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Pretty good. I just wanted to call in uh, about the battery lights issue. Um, I have been helping folks there in the neighborhood with, uh, with the protest and just in trying to figure out ways to resolve the issue. Um, and I just wanted to sort of update folks. The lights are out for now, as we know. Um, that's been in the media. Um, but we don't know why. Um, we know that the lights are not about security. So we really only, only, uh, only Colin and Jacqueline Way really know why the lights are off. Perhaps Bob Buckingham, is, uh, their lawyer, knows as well. It's not about security, though, Patty, and, and this is where things get a little bit strange. If it were about security, then the city manager would not be negotiating with the parties uh, based on the residents. What, what I, I, the way that I understand that it's, it's been negotiated is that the, 
that uh, Mr. Way has asked the residents to apologize, and he would bring the lights back to normal. Um, and uh, and also when that failed, because they weren't going to apologize, it was to stop calling them out on social media, and the lights would return to normal. So you know, just judging by those negotiations that the city manager has been involved in, it, it's not about security. It's about it's about uh, it's about perhaps I don't know. Uh, we can all guess what it's about. Harassment, perhaps? Who knows? Well, you know, there's a poster down there, and this is not regarding the lights necessarily, but how a service van has been parked. Uh, the poster down there quite clearly points to the fact that they think it's intimidation tactics. I've been in touch with Service Master uh, Canada, Service Master Restore Canada, um, about this issue. And uh, from what I understand, they are dealing with it uh, to some degree. The most recent message that I got was that it's in their legal department right now. Yeah, well, like most franchises, they, they're they right in saying, well, you know, their franchisees are independently owned and operated, but they do have a PR issue that they must deal with because just because I have franchisees out there operating, they, there is things like codes of conduct and standards that have to be met, whether it be professionally or the way you behave or the things you say. And so they say they're taking what they're calling the appropriate remedial measures. Uh, there, there's lots of this story which is really quite strange. And I know that there's people listening from outside uh, the metro area that think, who cares, you know, it's a bright light. But it really was quite obscene. I went down to check it out for myself one night, and it was unbelievable uh, just how bright they were, and unnecessarily so. You know, so the why, and then there's all kinds of stories that bleed in with how many properties he's bought and one that's right there uh, entering into Kitty Vitty and what that might mean for that area as well in addition to the outer battery. So, you know, the fact of the matter is here, the confusion I don't think has been alleviated when you are told that the lights are off for now and they'll be turned back on if required. What would constitute required? Like, people just wanted the lights off. So what does that even mean? Yeah, and I mean, if it were about security, they'd, they'd be pointed at the ground and they would be, you know, residential uh, lighting, not commercial lighting that's, you know, the, the equivalent to uh, or comparable to airport airport runways. You know, it, it's it's over it's overkill. Um, and just, I mean, even with the, I mean, the city, I'm sure, can, can chime in. Like, they, they have been negotiating between these two parties and they know the details. So, you know... Feel free to reach out to them and and ask why they're negotiating, why they're continuing to use taxpayer money to negotiate uh, for somebody who's obviously not uh, not interested in the security aspects of of lighting, which would would be acceptable perhaps. Um, but really, you know, what is acceptable and what's not needs to be addressed by uh, a city bylaw. They, they, and residents are still asking the city to come up with an amendment or deal with the issue through Article uh, 377. Um, Patty, I wanted to clarify something that came... So City Hall did a Q&A about this issue because I guess they've just been overwhelmed with emails and calls about it. And one of the issues that they have addressed is, well, even if we did have an amendment to the City of St. John's Act, then we wouldn't be able to retroactively uh, deal with this, this particular issue. Whether it's an issue across the city or not, which we know it is because we atipped it. Um, they're, the, 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 what they're saying is that they can't retroactively do it. Well, they retroactively raised their pensions 
in 2009 to go back to 2005. So, I mean, they can do that. The, also, we have three good examples of where this type of bylaw is used to control an activity, not a, not a part of a building, not like your windows or like heritage structure or lights that attach to a building, but as an activity. Um, the open air fires legislation uh, is, is controlled. It's an activity that's controlled. There's a maximum $5,000 fine. Noise violations, same thing. It's an activity, $5,000 maximum fine. Same thing with fireworks. The fireworks amendment was just done, what, last year? Um, same thing, $5,000 max fine. So we think the city can do this and that they're obfuscating and, and they're, they're trying to play politics with the province. And it's just not acceptable. And, I, you know, no, as you mentioned, uh, there's now... Uh, Colin and Jacqueline Way own a property in Kitty Vitty. Uh, we have problem residents all over the city. Um, you know, do people in in whatever neighborhood they live in want a want a city council that's not going to stand up for them? Well, you know, from the outside looking in, and I wasn't involved in any of the conversations with either. Well, I did speak with some residents, as a matter of fact, but. You know, it really felt like the city has been talking about required amendments to the City Act for a long time. And they should have been attended to a long time ago. But when, you know, the member for the area, John Abbott, says that he has spoken with uh, Minister Crystalline Howell about fast-tracking an amendment to deal with uh, nuisance lighting, and the city wasn't really that interested in it. You know, it felt like they were simply waiting for a lot of amendments to be done, much more to the city's liking, versus the deal with this as a one-off. I don't know why you can't just piecemeal it. If there was one that had an immediate concern that could be dealt with, that doesn't mean that you're never going to get another amendment passed, but it, it really felt like, okay, well, now's the time to amend the City Act because we've had this particular issue. We'll use this as a reason to have the province feel the pressure to put all the amendments in place, but... That's kind of what it looked like. That's what it sounded like. There, there. This, the new city act uh, allegedly is going to be is going to provide the city with enabling legislation, so they can make up whatever they want. They're still going to have to make up a light bylaw, a nuisance light bylaw in the future, if that's what they they're intending to do. But you know, I think they're just playing politics here, Patty. Uh, Ophelia Ravencroft is the ward two councillor, and I mean, even in her platform. Um, I'm running for council because I'm truly committed to making life better for vulnerable people all around the city. It's what I want to dedicate my life to doing. And as counselor, it's what I promise I'll deliver. We have vulnerable seniors who are, <laughs> who are being tortured by these lights or who were being tortured by these lights. And who knows when the, the switch is going to be flicked again. So, I mean, we, we, need a, we, need, we need these folks to stand up for these folks in the battery. We need the council to stand up for them. Uh, I'm going to be reaching out myself to uh, MP Seamus O'Regan, um, to the Minister of Tourism, Municipal Affairs, um, Environment and Climate Change, uh, Health, and I'll be also adding uh, uh, John Abbott on that on that email to to see what can be done at these levels and why they're not providing. Uh, the city of St. John's with all the information that they need in order to create an, an amendment and get it done quickly or to use 377 and just get it done right away. I, I really don't know how that section could not have been applied to this circumstance. It very clearly talks about 
any nuisance-related issues, this one I think could be easily categorized as that. Uh, I do have another question on a separate topic, but also a municipal topic. You and I have spoke about what you see in your own neighborhood, the Tessier Park area. And, you know, yeah. we have, we've seen and heard conversations about what's happening downtown, and there's been a little coalition struck. They've had a couple of meetings, you know, whether it be between musicians and bar owners and the RNC and other interested stakeholders. Has there been any realistic changes made where you live, whether it be police involvement or mental health matters that have been improved or anything, any update you can provide? I can tell you that, like, th- things that, you know, back in the summer, so we experienced, like, a, there was a, a crack house two doors down. Um, it was really, it was hell, Petty, as I, as I mentioned on your show many times. You know, people lined up at, like, 7 o'clock in the morning um, and just noise all the time. But um, things have improved. What, what we did was we, I mean, there were windows dashed out in this house. And we simply called the city inspections, and they went by and had an inspection of the, of the house. And it was it was not fit for occupancy. And uh, you know, we spoke to the landlord, and and there was quite a bit uh, of back and forth with um, the province on it because what we thought was was the case was that you know folks with uh, with folks that are in the community sports program can often be um, a good thing for a landlord because you know they're not easy to house. There's a lot of money that can go into that rent. Uh, so it's kind of an incentive to not get rid of this person. Um, but it was just a, such an issue in the neighborhood. It, it, Patty, as far as the, the downtown goes, I mean, I'm a musician as well. Like, we see this stuff all the time. I, I don't think things have improved. I think we're going to need to see a real change in how um, the city and the province deal with housing. Or, you know, we, we just need, we need housing to be, to, to be available. Uh, and it's not, and, and the market is tough, and we've got lots of, lots of uh, pressure on folks who do not have a lot of money with inflation. So I don't think things have improved. I think this crack house that was two doors down has moved a couple blocks over. Yeah, which doesn't change anything. Uh, I appreciate the update and the time this morning. Mark, anything else you'd like to say? Um, I think, did you hear that last bit, Patty? I think it. My phone just switched to my earphones. Yeah, it's a little bit hollow, but I heard you. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's about it. I think. I mean, good luck. We definitely have a lot of work to do in this city to to help those folks that are suffering from addictions and mental health issues. And uh, I know Thrive has been doing a lot of good work. So I would I would send them a bouquet uh, every day of the week if I could. And thanks for taking my call. Anytime, Mark. Stay in touch. You too. Thanks. Right. Bye. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, you reference back to a story that made headlines last week regarding the fact that there's been a 20% spike in violent crime here and gun-related matters. And, you know, the Crown prosecutors have 12 different charges of manslaughter or murder that they're currently dealing with, and that doesn't even include appeals. And, you know, the concept always has been, and the people will talk about, you know, we'll hire more prosecutors or hire more police officers, which is all fine, but Crown prosecutors and police only get involved, for the most part, after the fact, after the crime has been committed. So if we're really honestly talking about public safety and doing more, then it does start with things like addressing poverty and addictions and, yes, mental health uh, access for treatment. And some of that may indeed start with housing. We've got a housing problem. 
we know it to be true. The most recent bit of research says there's some 231 people homeless just in St. John's alone. And we know that doesn't reflect the true nature of homelessness in the city. So until we deal with how and when people find themselves in these circumstances, you know, hiring more cops and more crown prosecutors, I, I get the thought. But I think, you know, we spend more on those three particular areas of poverty, addictions, and mental health services, then we'll probably have a little bit more of a leg up. Uh, this note's coming from Amy Cody, of course. She's a councillor in Grand Falls, Windsor, and the president of municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, we gave a couple of shout-outs to some long-serving elected officials at the municipal level. She sent along a list, and these were from the Long Service Awards, which I knew were a thing, but I didn't look it up while we were talking. So just one category we'll use. 35 years plus of service, Brenda Biggin in Parsons Pond, Chess Kenway in Winterland, uh, Teresa Clark in Terrenceville, and for municipal administrators themselves, I'll start right at the bottom with the big ones. Uh, Alice Cumbie, 54 years out in Hearts Content, 40 plus years, Beverly Payton in Norris Arm, Yvonne Young in Stephenville Crossing, one more category, 35 years. Eleanor Andrews, Hearts Desire, Joan Wilcox in Clark's Beach, Maisie Wells out in Little Burnt Bay, Marie Searle in Holyrood, and Sharon Murphy in Placentia, 35 years plus as municipal administrators. All right, I'll keep that list on hand. We'll throw some shout-outs around. Why wouldn't we? Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, the floor is yours. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Minnie, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. I've been going to call you on this issue now for the past two weeks. And I, I, um, I'm i very troubled by it, but the House of Commons is uh, open tonight, or today, and I thought I'd bring it up. It's about the Fifth Estate uh, was on about a week and a half ago, and I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was about uh, euthanasia, you know, people. Now, I'm all for people that are really seriously ill, and if they feel like they've lived long enough with their pain that they need to get it done. But I'm really troubled over the fact that they're putting mental illness in that category. And worse than that, Patty, uh, one of the people that were were on that night was actually a homeless man who had really nothing other than the fact that he was uh, disabled and he was uh, on, on uh, with a walking stick. And uh, he was looking for a doctor to put him, I guess, out of his misery. But he said he had no pain. It's just that he didn't have anywhere to live. He's been evicted. And he didn't have anywhere to live, and he thought that this might be the answer to his problems. And, Patty, I've often thought that that's a slippery slope once you get on it, because uh, a lot of us has gone through mental issues, right? I had uh, terrible mental issues after my second son was born. I had tremendous postpartum depression, eh? And... uh, I know that there was many times that I, I didn't think I could deal with it. But uh, I'm very troubled by that. And I don't know if you saw it or how you feel about it. But the worst thing I heard was when the minister made the claim, yeah, there might be five or six people involved, but not that many. And I think if one person goes in that's homeless and gets a doctor to do that, is one too many. And I wondered how you felt about it. Yeah, right? I've talked about it many times. The Look, the medical assistance in dying, if it's 
because you are terminal, there is no hope, no treatment, no respite, and intolerable pain, and you understand the the issues yourself, your family does, you go through the appropriate processes, a doctor, and the second doctor interview says, okay, we can help you, then I get it. But there's been circumstances where people just felt hopeless, and because of feeling hopeless, they... And if you've ever gone through that, and like I say, I, I went through that for probably about a nine-year period after uh, Mark was born, and uh, I can tell you, it, it there was many times I've felt that way, but I never felt suicidal necessarily, but hope, hopeless. I felt hopeless, right? And uh, and I could see anybody that's like that at the time feeling that needs to be done, but. Uh, I mean, since then, I've, as you know, I've gone through an awful lot of, um, with uh, physical illnesses, and uh, I, the more I had that, the more I wanted to live, right? To the point that I'm in my 70s now, and I'm, uh, I, I, I don't have any anxiety around that at all. And I think that maybe there's not enough discussion gone into it in the House of Commons. And I think they should discuss it again because people that are having mental issues, you know, is, is a way out that they see at that time, right? And uh, things usually get better, but it's not going to get better if all you do is say, well, I'll go in now and uh, get a doctor. And I didn't think a doctor would ever do it, but apparently they are. They're taking it because there was a psychologist on or a psychiatrist, and he said he didn't go along with it at all, right? And uh, it was a number of people, actually, Patty, that didn't have terminal illnesses. And they actually had three or four people. One young man was only 18 who suffered from depression, and uh, he was contemplating it. And his family didn't even know that he, he was trying to get this done, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought, I've uh, been thinking about it last two weeks, and I thought there's an issue that I wanted to bring up to you because I've heard you talking about it actually before, and and uh, I knew that you sort of, you're a little bit wary about uh, people young and with mental illness and that kind of stuff as well, right? Well, of course, and there were stories coming from uh, out west, I believe it was Manitoba, where there was two instances where the women in this case were granted medical assistance in dying, and their issues were they didn't have enough supports at home to take care of themselves. That's no. not what it's for. That this, you know, If there are things we can do to support you, home care or otherwise, and then you add to it, you know, people, uh, veterans of the Canadian Armed Forces, being offered medical assistance in dying as a way out of their hopelessness. That's just not what it's intended to be like. That's not how we're supposed to be thought, talking about it or using it. And I'm glad you brought it up. As traumatic a conversation as it is, it's an important one. And I'm glad you called this morning, Minnie. You, well, you can have the you. final word. Yeah, thank you, Patty. And uh, I would say that uh, my thing would be give everybody, I'm like you with the guaranteed income, Give everybody enough to live on. My God, I mean, there's people living on $200, $300 a month, and they wouldn't feel the necessity to even think that way, right? Yeah, I think it's a bit more complicated than that, but uh, you're yeah. you're partially right as to where I stand. But you've had the last word. It's 12 o'clock. Thanks for this. Thanks. Thanks, Minnie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. We're right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. 
On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.